Welcome one, welcome all, and welcome back to Conversations with the Mind, folks. You are in the right place. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I want to first start off by saying thank you to all of our listeners. You guys are the reason that we do this whole thing in the first place. So thank you. Thank you for continuing to listen. The listenership continues to grow every week, and we are enthralled by the growth that has happened so far. And largely, that is because of all of you telling your friends and family about the podcast, sharing it on your social media when you see us post either YouTube videos or our podcast audio. Please, please, please continue to like and share all of our stuff that we share on there. Get it out to your friends and family through word of mouth, through social media, through email, however you can. Also, if you find the content of this podcast at all useful, please feel free to donate to the podcast. There should be a link at the bottom of whatever podcast app you're listening to. So you can donate to the podcast in any amount. It can be from 50 cents, a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, whatever you want. We've had some... uh, Contributors come in and and throw down some um, hefty donations in the past, which has helped us to upgrade some of our equipment. But we're looking to upgrade our audio equipment next. That means microphones, soundboards, things like that. And uh, most of our upgrades have been directly out of pocket, which we don't mind doing. Like I said, this message is for you guys. This is why we do it. It was for you guys. But if you find it at all useful, it can be beneficial to your own karma to give and donate to a cause that you find worthy. So if you find that this podcast has benefited you in any way, uh, has provided value to you and your life in any way, or to the value of your loved one's lives in any way, please feel free to donate and show your appreciation for the content, for the guests, and for the work that we put into the podcast. So please donate. But the best way you can support us is by liking and sharing. So make sure you go to our YouTube page as well. Go to the Mind Ops YouTube page, and it's spelled just like it is on the website, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S dot com. I tell you what, guys, it was super fun to create my website, and um, I love all the little features that I put on there, all the videos, uh, all the links to the podcast, um, all the sections on uh, psychotherapy and things like that, and and keep going to the website. There's going to be more and more updates to come. We're going to have loads and loads of content, uh, all useful and free stuff on there. And you can also reach out to myself or to our guests through the website as well. So mind-ops.com. Go to the comments section and leave whatever comment or question you may have. So please go to the YouTube page. The Mind Ops YouTube page, like I said, it's spelled M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S dot com. And on that YouTube page, we have a variety of things. I've put up the uh, videos of some of these podcast episodes, as well as a number of um, videos that I've shot just kind of breaking down some of the content that we talk about on the show. And I've also created a number of playlists on there, so feel free to explore the playlists on the YouTube page. Uh, Some of the playlists that I've put together are are fascinating, for me anyway. Um, I've probably categorized hundreds of different uh, interesting videos from topics like psychology to philosophy to quantum mechanics to uh, philosophy of mind to psychedelics to uh, lectures from famous uh, people. So check out the playlist folks Um, check out the little categories that we have there and if anything interests you during the show feel free to go check out the playlist chances are I've I've already put something up uh, on there to to help 
broaden your understanding and knowledge on some of these topics. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Welcome back to the show. And now a word from our sponsor. All right, folks, this is an award-winning episode of Conversations with the Mind, and today's good news story comes from the Good News Network, as always. The title of the article reads, Blood types may soon be indifferent as scientists use our gut bacteria to make universal blood type. So this was an interesting article, I thought, because uh, it talks about how uh, these scientists are starting to use um, some really cool technologies to change some of the strains of antigens and antibodies on the surface of the blood cells, uh, which uh, create the three different blood types, um, A, B, A, B, or O. Well, actually, four blood types. But uh, the first three blood types each carry different strains of antigens and antibodies on the surface, which provoke different immune responses. And that's why you can't really give uh, one type of blood type to someone else with a different type. So this new technology that they're using, uh, so O blood type is the universal blood type, and that's usually what uh, people will get at the hospital if the doctors don't know what uh, the individual or the patient's blood type is. Um, But this groundbreaking new study at the University of British Columbia, researchers say they managed to identify a bacterial enzyme that can neutralize antigens and render their immune system response harmless. So that makes um, some of these other blood types more acceptable within uh, the body. So let's see. Um, so yeah, it talks about how blood transfusion in, is an indispensable part of the healthcare system, saving many thousands of lives annually, and how this new technology could save many thousands more. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm just getting over a... Uh, a little bit of a cough, so if you hear a little raspiness in my voice, um, yes, my voice is uh, sexy like Barry White today, but it's not because it's normally like that. It's it's like that because uh, I'm getting over a cough, uh, but pretty cool stuff. So they, it says that their ability to completely convert uh, blood type A to blood type O um, of the same rhesus type at a very low enzyme concentration in the whole blood supply will simplify their incorporation into blood transfusion practice, broadening the blood supply. So much important things to watch out for in this realm. They're just at the beginning stages, but this looks very, very promising and a good news story that's going to save many, many lives. All right. So on to the conversation with my mind recently, and this is an interesting one. Um, the other day I was thinking a lot about, so I'm going through these major transitions in my life, uh, a lot of discontent with certain aspects of my life. Um, and I find myself sacrificing a lot of my happiness in order, uh, to achieve some sense of stability or safety. So this conversation with my mind is based on the idea of, uh, someone following their happiness versus someone following the idea of safety or security. Okay. And, you know, there's a lot of benefits on both sides, and it all depends on kind of what what the individual is looking to achieve in any given moment, what they're looking to feel, what they're looking to uh, think about themselves. And I find that when we choose safety uh, over happiness, uh, we tend to be seeking an intrinsic well-being through external safety, things like uh, securing food, shelter, relationships, uh, com- um, 
you know, medicine, et cetera, things like this. We're seeking sustainability of income. So, you know, seeking the safety of a weekly or biweekly or monthly paycheck. We're often seeking power and influence that would secure value and position, maybe in a company or secure value within ourselves if uh, we've been uh, elevated to a position of power or influence within whatever workspace we're, we're in or um, social groups. Uh, if we're following safety, we're, we're seeking more of a willingness to put up with pain, both physical and emotional, in order to secure that safety, and we're willing to really put up with a lot. Um, but we're also seeking freedom from instability, uh, which makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, we feel a lot more stable um, when we go away from instability and, and we find stability in those things I mentioned earlier, like food, shelter, medicine, relationships. And uh, lastly, you know, we're looking for a willingness to endure unhealthy connections with others in order to get that sense of safety. Okay, so on the other end of things, if someone's following happiness, and this is the, the side that uh, I tend to want to engage more in, but uh, right now I'm working on on identifying within myself, you know, why do I why don't I choose safety over happiness in certain areas and how can I move more towards following happiness? So with happiness, I think that people in general seek intrinsic well-being. So this is a well-being and a sense of happiness that comes from inside of ourselves rather than from external uh, things. So we're seeking more internal happiness rather than happiness from a new car or a new uh, house or a new spouse or something like that. Uh, when we're following happiness, we seek meaning and purpose in our life rather than just uh, sustainability of that income. So we're looking for deeper meaning and deeper purpose, um, things that drive us forward that we wake up and smile and are happy about because we get to go do those things rather than when we follow safety, oftentimes we, we put ourselves in positions where we're, we're doing things either in our job or our daily life that we don't want to do just in order to achieve that safety. So this is more about um, seeking more meaning and purpose and finding happiness through those things. Also seeking influence and a positive impact on humanity. So not just seeking power and influence over others uh, to secure you know, our own self-esteem or value, but really seeking to have positive influence and positive impact on others in every way that we can. Um, something I've been working on is trying to find more and more opportunities every single day to just be kind. I think the Dalai Lama himself said it takes less effort uh, or almost no effort to just be kind in every situation when you have the choice. So just be kind. Also, when we're seeking happiness, we're seeking freedom from pain. Again, this is also similar to uh, following the safety path. So we're seeking freedom from pain, both physically and emotionally, by trying to follow our happiness and find the things that make us happy. And we seek freedom from instability, also just like following safety. So these, this is where it overlaps a little bit. Um, and, you know, in general, we're seeking freedom from instability. We want you know, we want some parts of our life to be predictable. We don't want to know where our next meal is coming from. Uh, so that's an important part to being happy is, is securing and making sure that your basic needs are met so that you can um, go out and pursue what really makes you happy. So lastly, uh, following my happiness seems to be uh, more facilitative of fostering and generating healthy connections with others rather than enduring unhealthy connections with others to get the safety. So really following happiness is, is making connections with people that 
I value and, and meeting new people and getting to know them and making other connections. Um, it's really important to kind of distinguish for yourself between the two. Are you following your happiness or are you following safety in your life? And in what areas are you doing which and how can you change that if it's something you want to change? Um, so some of the cool research that I think has come out about happiness uh, that I found fascinating when I heard about it at first is that happiness levels don't necessarily change after someone uh, begins to make about $75,000 a year in their income. And this study is, is pretty famous um, and it shows that happiness levels don't increase. You know, if someone's making millions of dollars every year, their happiness doesn't go up any more um, than someone who makes $75,000 a year. And they say that this is because once you reach that $75,000 a year income, pretty much all your basic needs are taken care of. You can afford housing, you can afford food, you can afford health care. You know, you can uh, have a little bit of disposable income to go out and have fun. Anything less than this, and happiness uh, levels wane a little bit, just on average. But I certainly know lots and lots of people with far less income than seventy-five thousand a year who are much happier than other people I know who do make that much. So happiness is also a state of mind, and we can find happiness in any situation, any circumstance, even if we're dirt poor, living on the street. Um, I know people who have found happiness that way as well. So it's important to know that. You know, seeking a uh, huge income over $75,000 a year is not going to bring you much happiness. So what is happiness? Well, we know that happiness is an increase in chemicals like dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins in the system. And um, doing things that naturally work to increase these chemicals uh, is always better than seeking to increase these chemicals through, um, through just drugs. So people go out and get... Uh, prescription drugs uh, that, that help to elevate the levels of these drugs in the system in order to give us a false sense of happiness, but we can really go out and do a lot of things to increase happiness uh, and increase these chemicals within our brain. So I'll give you some good examples. <clears throat> so if you're, if you're falling short in any of these areas, you might want to start thinking about how you can improve in these areas. I know I am. Okay, so uh, I'll just start from the top of my list. So holding on to your own values and, and first establishing your own values and belief systems is important. Um, that's important work to do for anybody. Take a look inside and, and uh, pick and choose which values, morals, and beliefs you want to hold on to and espouse as your own and let go of the ones that don't serve you anymore. Maybe let go of the ones that were imposed upon you by other conditioning sources such as teachers, religious leaders, parents, things like that. Uh, number two, imagine more uh, best-case scenarios instead of catastrophizing and, and imagining um, primarily what the worst-case scenario could be in any given situation. Um, give back more to your community. That can often make you feel better and also benefit you in the long run um, as communities improve. Okay, Improve your sleep habits. Uh, this means going to bed earlier or waking up earlier. Um, just making sure that you get enough sleep. That is huge. Um, I think sleep deprivation is one of the biggest uh, causes of um, mental health issues uh, in the short term anyway. So make sure you're getting good sleep. Also, make sure that you have close relationships with others, uh, human or non-human. So this means pets, but also humans also. Um, so close these close connections, close relationships with friends, family, 
community members, things like that, those definitely boost a lot of those uh, feel-good chemicals in your brain. Uh, pursue something that is meaningful and purposeful for you. So work towards a cause that you actually believe in. Um, if you find this in your work, awesome. But a lot of people don't find meaning and purpose in their work. So make sure that you have some other passion, some other pursuit, some hobby, something else that you wake up every single day feeling happy about pursuing. So this is broadening and increasing meaning and purpose in your life. Also doing something for another person. You know, uh, if you've ever... If you've ever given leftovers from a restaurant to um, someone begging for food on the street or just done something kind for someone without anybody asking you to do that, you know how good that makes you feel. So uh, do more things for more people uh, besides yourself and you'll boost some of those levels. Let's see, some other things. Uh, Exercise regularly. Things like meditation and massage are great. I've gone over those in the podcast numerous times. Uh, but there's also some supplementation um, or some some naturally occurring chemicals that you can ingest that uh, through your food, through your diet, that will also increase uh, some of these feel-good, happy chemicals. So one is tyrosine. Uh, so this is usually found in rich foods um, like almonds, bananas, avocados, eggs, beans, fish, and chicken. And they can often produce more dopamine within your body. Um, there's also another chemical called tryptophan. I'm sure you guys have heard it, heard about it. It's uh, commonly associated with falling asleep after you know a huge Thanksgiving dinner. But tryptophan produces more serotonin in the brain and can be found in foods such as salmon, poultry, eggs, spinach, seeds, milk, soy, and nuts. So incorporating more of these into your daily eating habits can certainly help to boost these chemical levels in your brain naturally. So do what you can to pursue happiness, Uh, follow happiness, and uh, find happiness in every moment, guys and gals. And uh, let's let's not give up our happiness for safety. You know, this is a a conversation I hear um, a lot in the political realm, and it's true. You know, I don't want to sacrifice. I don't want to sacrifice my own happiness just so that I can feel safe. And uh, I hope you don't either. Okay. So our guest today, very special guest, Mr. Patrick Gorman. Uh, Patrick has a biochemistry background. He's known as uh, he's he's known as a pressman, uh, P R E S S M A N, which is uh, if you don't know, I didn't know this when I uh, talked to him, but he works in the printing industry, so you know, printing press, things like that. He's called a pressman, and he has a lot of experience with working with uh, the full color spectrum and pigment coloring uh, within the printing industry. Very interesting take on um, the color spectrum and what we can perceive with our human senses. We'll go into that more in the podcast. Also, he has a personal passion for deeper understanding for the cosmos. And this is very apparent, and you'll hear it today when we talk to Patrick. He spends a lot of time, uh, a lot of his free time, just looking into and researching uh, cosmic com- uh, cosmic uh, content like sacred geometry and physics and quantum mechanics and quantum theory and all sorts of things. And it was really awesome to have him on the podcast today. So without further ado, we'll get into episode 45 of Conversations with the Mind. And for all you listeners out there, I hope you enjoy it. I certainly did. Uh, I enjoyed talking to Patrick. And uh, here we go. (music) 
This is the Conversations with the Mind podcast, where we explore consciousness through conversations with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet, and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence. Hey folks, welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, Shane Lamaster. This is episode 45, and we're sitting here with special guest Patrick Gorman. How are you, sir? Doing good, how are you? I'm awesome. Um, thank you for coming on the show. Oh yeah, no problem. Yeah. Uh, so I always start my podcast off with the same question, uh, and you've heard the podcast before, so you know it's coming, Yeah. Um, which I appreciate. Uh, so anyway... The, the podcast is called Conversations with the Mind, and the audience knows what that means to me and have heard a number of guests uh, as far as what they think that means. So I want to hear from you, what, what does Conversations with the Mind, what does that phrase itself mean to you, and how does it resonate? Um, yeah, well, since I'm hearing it before, I thought about it a lot. And so pretty much it, Conversations with the Mind reminds me of looking within like, you know, meditation or trying to, like, do a self-analyzation. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like my mind is a whole made up of many parts. So that there's, like, different aspects of me that I can feel within me. But they all lead to, like, a one unified voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the conversation is the communication I have with the different parts of myself. Nice. Like that. Do you have a meditation practice of your own? Um, so I remember asking you at the gym, talking about... I've never, like, studied meditation, but uh, I've had, like, so in uh, Cool Down for Judo, mm-hmm. one of it is to uh, Mokso. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you pretty much, you have to sit there, and uh, what I was taught is the, you know, clearing your mind of everything and just letting it relax. Mm-hmm. So that was the first one I ever learned, and that was, you know, maybe, like, eight or nine when I first started Judo. Um the other ones are just like visualization. Uh, I've just heard people talk about it before, like, you know, vi- visualizing winning or, you know, visualizing mm-hmm. what you want kind of thing. Um, what I use it for is like I envision what's going on in, inside my body, like what sensations mean and trying to further define them to understand what exactly the pain or whatever is telling me. So like for injuries and stuff like that. Almost like a diagnostic tool. Yeah. Nice. So you're using what what in the industry we call like a body scan meditation, right? Where you're scanning from head to toe in no particular order. I mean, sometimes there's an order, but scanning from head to toe and like to really tuning in with mindfulness and paying attention to present moment awareness and sensation in different parts of your body, almost one at a time so that you can do that diagnostic and be like, okay, you know, I feel pain here. But when I move it, does it change? And uh, what is the quality of the pain? Is it stinging? Is it dull? Is it, you know, and, uh, you know, doing that body scan. I I love that you're doing that. That's awesome. And then the first one you described is more um, like Zen meditation, right? Which is uh, Japanese-based, obviously. Zen is from Japan, and Judo is from Japan, too. So pretty pretty, uh, obvious connection there. But, yeah, no mind or Zen meditation. That is just a clearing of, like, the objective is to clear the mind of all thought. And all projection, all visualization, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and very calming, very relaxing to do that practice. Uh, other, I mean, there's there's many forms of meditation. Uh, and I try and do as many different types as I can to... They're all like different tools, right? 
Yeah. Some are diagnostic. Uh, some are, um, you know, more intentional and you can do actual healing work through meditation. Some are, like you said, visualizing. So I do a lot of work like that for myself and with the athletes I work uh, with through sports psychology to, to help them visualize the win and visual, visualize overcoming obstacles that they foresee, right, in a match or, you know, whatever sport. Um, and also visualizing for just general manifestation in life, not just in sport too, but like uh, the law of attraction and things like that, right? Like manifesting things first in your mind with a vision or a goal or something um, and then going out and doing it, but also, which I hope we, we get to talk to, uh, or talk, we can talk to this topic a little bit more today is like the, the physical nature of thought, right? And how thought actually has a physical nature. Yeah. You know, when we think, when we think of consciousness or, or thinking, um, we think that it's like completely empty, that it's, uh, you know, uh, it's it's ethereal, it's um, kind of free-floating out there, but really, you know, when we've studied it, um, it has very defined frequency and vibration, yeah. and we know that frequency and vibration is what everything is made out of energetically, and so it makes sense that our thoughts can have um, an influence, either positive or negative, on physical matter around us and, around, yeah. and on other people, too. You know, one of my favorite examples of that is uh, it's uh, Star Trek, and the um, e-reader. I'm so, not familiar with Star Trek too much. Okay, well, in Star Trek, you know, it came out in the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, but on there, I know Next Generation uh, for sure, but uh, they have e-readers on it. You know, it's just like a, like a digital book, basically, mm -hmm. that, you know, it changes and it's a screen and everything. Mm -hmm. Way when that was science fiction. But now we have those. And so people have made the argument that maybe that the reason the like iPad and all of that the tablet exists is because people saw it in Star Trek and they're like oh I want that I want to create that mm. and so that the like the imagination fed into reality that way mm. and, and it almost has like an intergenerational effect too like someone else's imagination in the last generation um, suddenly spurs Steve Jobs in this generation to go out and actually create it yeah that's pretty cool that's all that's that's a direct link to, like, cosmic or, uh, you know, unified consciousness, I think. You know, that's something I've talked about in previous podcasts is, like, how do we access that collective consciousness, that database of information that we all are tapped into individually, but how do we tap into the collective to get bigger downloads, right, of more information? And I think that's a great example of exactly how we can do that is... Um, you know, paying attention to and, and admiring and, and watching other people's imagination unfold in like these sci-fi type settings or um, in fictional works, either written or, or on video, and, and then it's spurring us into action to actually create that, right? So yeah. whatever we're imagining today for technology or for whatever, our, our kids are going to be the ones who actually create that based off of our imagination. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. Um, and then you said conversations with, with the mind it, for you is talking to these different parts of yourself. Can you, t can you talk a little bit more about the different parts of yourself? Yeah, so I kind of identify the different thoughts and emotions I feel to like the different parts of me. So like one that's a very stark one is uh, like the fight or flight response. It's like this like chilling feeling I feel come up and it kind of like I can feel it locks out like you know my rational mind and you know it's 
it's like a feeling and it's like a reaction all of its own that takes over me mm-hmm. you know and but you can feel it before the decision needs to be made to fight to fight or flee yeah it's like the it's like a different part of me is like has like tripped the default and like it's taken over me mm-hmm. you know so it's like it's not my conscious mind is in control of my body anymore mm-hmm. my movements are involuntary and you know i think that's part of like the definition of fight or flight is it's just like it's faster than your brain can react and it's like a defense mechanism basically. yeah it's, it's like a reflex yeah mm-hmm. so that's one i can definitely you know the few times like when you have like a startle or a scare when it's when you get that i can feel that part overtake the other thing it's like just listening to like the cost benefit analysis you do in your head about any sort of decision there's always you know you debate yourself there's different voices like there's the more aggressive voice in me you know that wants to you know just take a more aggressive position or uh you know more aggressive action and then there's you know the calmer part of me that's like you know calm down you know it's not mm-hmm. worth it mm-hmm. that you know like an example of when you want to get angry but then you know you, you don't want the consequences that come along with doing that absolutely and so it's like that inner debate right there is just different parts of me yeah um and you know it, it could be classified in so many different ways but what came to mind when you're talking about that is like almost you know emotional mind versus rational mind you know uh, but also those two umbrellas have a lot of different components underneath them and characterizations as well i think you know the emotional mind we can present these different parts of ourselves from many different emotions right excitement anger fear um you know stress sadness all these things are different parts of ourselves that we can directly converse with if we take the time to like slow slower thoughts down and actually have that debate in our head yeah but then also underneath you know the rational mind side there's there's like our analytical side there's uh you know there's all all sorts of different aspects of self that we can converse with and and get information from so it's not just black or white one or the other but it's many different uh you know almost fractalized identities within us but you said working towards this uh one uh, how did you put it? Like this one conscious, one unified consciousness within yourself. The way I think of it, it's like a board of people all talking, and then that what I am is a consensus between all those people. Mm-hmm. And so, with that, I have an interesting. Kind of makes me think. Uh, have an interesting idea, and I have no idea if this is true or not. But like you know, schizophrenia is that you can't come to a, you know, consensus. Mm. And that they have this voice that they hear within them that they don't recognize as themselves. Hmm. I've asked Cody about this, and we, I've talked a little bit, but never got anything definitive. But I always thought that would be interesting, mm-hmm. if, you know, like an implication. But that's what it feels like to me in my head, is that there's all these different parts of me that are talking, that, but I recognize them as myself. And then I, you know, mm-hmm. it gets codified into words and then i speak so maybe this overarching for you a non-schizophrenic or someone who's not uh, who's not affected by schizophrenia directly um it's almost like the board meeting is happening but you're able to maintain the walls of the uh the meeting room yeah right so nothing gets out of control you're like a regulator right a referee whereas uh someone who is uh, affected with schizophrenia might have the same board 
boardroom, but they not, might not be able to maintain the structure of the walls or maintain the safety of the participants in there, right? There might be one, um, one voice that, that is uh, maybe louder than the others or more aggressive and, and takes liberties at the expense of other voices, right? Or something like this. Um, that's interesting because I, I studied shamanism a little bit in college and um, the way that a lot of different tribes across the world view specifically uh, people who are affected with symptoms similar to what we would classify as schizophrenia. I mean, obviously they don't have classification of schizophrenia in their tribal cultures, mm -hmm. but these are the people that become shamans. You know, these are the people that uh, the mentally, what we classify as mentally ill by our standards are the ones who are venerated, the people who are held up on high in these tribal cultures um, because they have access to uh, these other voices, right? And maybe it could be that they're they are receiving like they have maybe they have an, another open channel where they are receiving messages from a voice outside of their own consciousness. That's a, always a possibility too. Right. And the tribes believe that you know these are the people that are gonna speak up first about natural disaster long before it happens, about uh, plagues that are coming before they ever happen, and and the tribe really um, heeds these warnings and listens to them and. Uh, it's something we don't do in our culture. You know, we kind of demonize those things. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, what was your what was your path? Uh, I mean, you and I have talked a little bit about about your interests in some of these areas, and we're gonna dig into a, a wide range of different topics. But like, what was sort of your pathway to even becoming interested in? these bigger topics or, um, you know, ideas like consciousness, metaphysics, geometry, uh, mathematics, things like that. What got you interested? Well, I'd have to say the first thing is having really good teachers in high school. Mm. So I've had a, a biology teacher who ended up being a medicinal chemistry teacher for me, uh, Mr. Choi. He was very influential in my life. He really, like, you know, really helped, like didn't let people get... I wouldn't say left behind, but, you know, he was very interested in your uh, mental progression. Mm. So he had a lot of encouragement. In fact, that uh, medicinal chemistry class was completely uh, created because four students got together and we just wanted to learn about that. And so he found a way to get the class made. Nice. Yeah. So, I mean, like in high school, I was doing uh, psychedelics like LSD and mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Was this a private school you were at? Yeah. Okay. The Latin School of Chicago. Okay. So you're doing them while you're at while you're in school or uh, like on breaks, things like that. On breaks, mm -hmm. and but you know it, I didn't really regulate it at that time. Mm -hmm. So I mean I don't really remember. It could have been during school as well. So this is a time of like number one, um, mental and emotional development, right? We're yeah. in our teens here, so it's a crazy time with hormones and new thoughts and you know now we start to question life and death and all these things and sex and rebirth and all these things uh not only that but you're throwing on recreational psychedelic use which i know from my experience in my teens that blew my mind wide open to the possibility yeah. of exploring it in the first place and then also you're getting like this amazing support from one of your teachers one of your mentors that you really look up to who's really invested in your mental development that kind of i don't know for me if i was in that position I would I would start to take a notice of my own interests in in my mental development too yeah mm -hmm. so I mean I'd have to say it all started like right there pretty mm -hmm. much and then uh, I went to Marietta College 
for a semester for biochemistry. And there it was, I was taking like 20 credit hours, so it was quite a bit of work, but why I wanted to take, I was doing a double major of bio, biology and chemistry. I was taking a lot of classes because I wanted the overlap to make the connections between how chemistry and biology, you know, how they work together. Mm -hmm. Instead of just the, you know, you just like look at the parts of it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you wanted to see the machine, you know, yeah, in its entirety. Exactly. Nice. And so uh, from there I learned a whole bunch of interesting things about pharmacology and like, you know, further about what like physically is happening in your brain when you're taking, you know, loose gens or like one of the big questions I had at first was, is this like a new experience? Like, is this something that's, you know, am I experiencing something that no human has ever experienced before? Or am I experiencing something that's like already within me and it's just bringing it out of me? Mm. And that's kind of like, so like the, you know, the science definition of it is that it's just neurotransmitters, you know, exciting uh, receptor sites that's opening up channels, you know, the calcium channels and the uh, potassium channels or whatever, and that's causing, you know, an action potential. And that's, the, but that the, uh, the receptors themselves are already in you. Mm -hmm. So that idea seems to say that, you know, what LSD or what any of any drug makes you feel, it's already within you. It's just bringing that out of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost like a catalyst. Yeah. That it's not necessarily and that's how a lot of our drugs work that's how a lot of yeah. pharmaceuticals work um is that they have an action within your own systems to get your own systems to produce you know more dopamine or more serotonin or yeah. or block those things right other things like that so that makes a, that makes a lot of sense um yeah and and you, i told this story i think a couple podcasts ago where um they gave this monk who had been he'd been a long time meditator like 50 60 years of meditation they gave him a bunch of lsd once and then asked him after the trip you know what was your experience like they were really eager to hear like what someone who had been exploring the mind for all these years thought of an lsd trip and he said i didn't notice anything different than what my normal everyday experience is like oh really? yeah and so and you know he has no reason to lie you know he's a monk um but i do believe that psychedelics can catalyze that experience right but i also believe that that experience is inborn within us and we can generate our own psychedelic experiences without the use of drugs right we know that because of you know breath work breath work can do that uh, stan groff's holotropic breath work is is most well known for that so inducing psychedelic states just through hyperventilation through all sorts of uh, different techniques that way through you you know yoga meditation uh, people have gotten in psychedelic states even you know, and psychedelic just means mind manifesting. That's how it's defined. So there's a lot of different ways to do this without drugs. Um, it gets kind of mixed up with, with the terminology of like altered state of consciousness, right? Which is also important to talk about too, but people experience that from the time they're young. I remember spinning around on the playground over and over, you know, trying to get myself as dizzy as possible to fall over, you know, and having a blast. Yeah. You know, it's, it's in our nature to want to experiment with our consciousness and alter it in different ways and just run these self-experiments to kind of figure out what this whole thing's about. Well, you know, a big thing to me is that, uh, we talked about this before, how everything is relative and how perspective can change everything, you know? Mm -hmm. When, uh, 
even in like you know physics like you know changing your perspective changes the way the dynamics mm-hmm. of like the earth or is the like the thing we were talking about is is, is the moon spinning mm-hmm. and from the perspective of earth it's not mm-hmm. but from the perspective of the sun it is right because it's locked in to earth's orbit so we only get to see one side of the moon at any time yeah but yeah, like you said, if if you take a wider view around the sun, then it is spinning yeah. the same way that the Earth is spinning. Yeah, and then so when you take like psychedelics, or if you change your perspective, change like alter your consciousness, or you know, is to me is changing your perspective, and you can inherently have access to more information mm-hmm. because you're able to form more concepts. You know, collect different types of information that weren't available to you before. Yeah, well, I mean, think of any memory that you have, right? It's usually from one perspective. Yeah. Usually from your perspective. But, as I mean, we talked about this too with the holographic universe as a theory, you know, um, that there's infinite amount of perspectives to be taken. I mean, in this situation right now, I'm sitting across from you on the table, right? But I'm seeing you from my perspective. If I could just for a moment take this perspective of this plant that's sitting right here next to us, uh, you know, and what it senses between both of us, that's a that's one out of an infinite amount of perspectives that can be taken about the same situation. And we do this in therapy. We do this in psychedelic assisted therapy as well, bringing up trauma from the past that people have and then allowing them to experience it from a different perspective than what the trauma is sitting in right so whatever experience you had say it was like a bad car wreck you get in a bad bad car wreck when you're young and you just have this ptsd around long car rides or car rides up in the mountains or on icy roads or something um well that's from your perspective uh as being you know the person in the car when the crash happened but if for a moment in therapy or in psychedelic assisted therapy you can bring that trauma back to the surface to where the feeling is real for the person and then have them just for a, a few minutes take the perspective of some something else uh, outside of themselves then they're oftentimes able to see you know like kind of drop the personal story that they've attached to it and now see it from an objective point of view that maybe you know the car wreck was a terrible tragedy but it also catalyze this change in their life and help lead them down this direction and it was a good thing in a lot of ways too so they're able to see different perspectives on the same event and then heal themselves and move forward i think that that's a a, as far as i know only a human characteristic to be able to run simulations in our mind to take these other perspectives but so important right yeah so what do you what was your you know going through high school you're you're figuring these things out and how did how did the perspective stuff fit into that oh like how did my changing my perspective and everything sure um one of the more enlightening parts was i feel like empathy was a big development just from being able to change perspectives Mm -hmm. like um uh, i got a physical feeling of like someone else's life and now it would be my own right and it was like and then comfortable like forcing into that perspective but then once you see that you know there's all these different emotions and all everything you feel also applies to other people it makes me more considerate of their feelings and makes me more acknowledge a world beyond myself i Mm -hmm. guess i think that's a skill that not everyone has 
I would agree. I feel like there's people wouldn't do some of the things they do if they recognize that. Yeah, I know. For me, I didn't have empathy for a long time. I had to be trained in me, you know, yeah. through my schooling. Um, and I'm still it's still something I'm working on. I consider it one of my weaker points. You know, um, it's it's a tough one. Yeah. It's tough to put yourself in somebody else's shoes because all we have is our own experience. All we have to compare to anything is our own experience. Um, so it's difficult to, you know, difficult to put yourself in their position or even try and mind read and see what is going on in someone else's mind without asking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think it is a capacity that, you know, we can develop. And um, like you said, maybe it's not a communication thing. It's more of a felt thing, you know, maybe more tied in with our limbic system and, and my emotional centers of my brain tying in with your emotional centers. And again, back to... Yeah vibration and frequency right when you're feeling sad and depressed and down but you're not saying anything about it i can still pick up off of that a little bit because you know maybe you're giving off pheromones hormones things in the air that i'm that my receptors are picking off of and interpreting or maybe i'm sensing a certain frequency or vibration that you're putting off you know yeah mm-hmm. also know uh like body language is definitely a big part of you know human communication sure and uh macro uh, macro and micro expressions on the face mm-hmm. too you know we're great at picking up like little twitches in the eyes and and smiles and things like that oh here comes my co-host tink just got out of the uh the cancer treatment hospital today and uh he got he got uh so we got this tumor removed from his hip a little while ago and then just got some testing done today, and he's, he's as far as we know, cancer-free in all of his internal organs, and we're super happy about that. He's a little lethargic, but he came down to join the show. And, uh, yeah, these are my two co-hosts. So. Okay, cool. So let's get into, um, I want to talk, start talking about uh, geometry a little bit, because that was the last thing that you and I were really riffing on on the mats the other day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I hope we have a lot more conversation. You know, jujitsu is, is one of those things where um, it's great to go and get the training, but we get so much more from just being there around each other. And, and we spend a lot of time before and after the, the uh, practices talking and, you know, getting to know each other. And I find it so enriching in so many different ways. Um, anyway, so... Getting onto the ge- geometric um, piece, so I I brought up sacred geometry a couple times on the podcast. Um, things like the Flower of Life, Metatron's uh, cube, and uh, Fibonacci spirals, and things like that, and how these these geometric patterns tend to show up in nature and in the cosmos on both macro and micro scales, like all the way to the size and shapes of galaxies. Um, all the way down to, uh, you know, how, or the size and shape of, of um, photons and gluons and how they interact and, and move and things like that. And um, I just want to know, what are your specific interests in the geometrical shape or, or how geometry plays into reality and the structure of reality? I think my main interest in this like the geometric structure of reality is finding like a you know like that perspectiveless perspective you know like so if you know how reality builds itself you can like learn some sort of like universal truth in that way mm. um, about yourself too 
But because yeah, if you can find out, if you can find out how the universe builds itself and structures itself, then you know how you build yourself and structure yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I think my interest in there is is a a little selfish in that uh, I want to use it as sort of like a biohack or a life hack, right? Where if right. I can figure out how the universe makes planets and stars and stuff, then maybe I can, um, you know, change some molecular structure in my body with my mind. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite things to tell people, too, is that, you know, uh, so we know portals exist. And I just heard something about uh, uh, scientists thinking that black holes were portals to different universes. Is this what yeah. you're talking about, or, or portals to different dimensions, or what? Oh, uh, no, this is actually, um, they're called electromagnetic X-points. Hmm. And so, yeah, you can Google it, and it's on there. Uh, basically, it's on uh, NASA's website. Uh, there's these points that intersect points between, like, the sun and the Earth's electromagnetic fields mm -hmm. that um, where they cross, basically supercharged particles coming off the sun go through these portals and travel the millions of miles instantly hmm. to hit the Earth's atmosphere. So almost like wormholes. Yeah, exactly, wormholes. Okay. That it basically instantaneous travel between... Um, Two points. So is it so. is it like the old theories of folding time and space with with these uh, portals, uh, or do they have any any theories on on the structure of the portal itself? No, they don't. Uh, they're still trying to study them, is what the article says. The uh, University of Iowa. Hmm. Um, from the article, it says that it's the where it's the two. Uh, it's where the it's something to do with the interaction between the. Uh, electromagnetic fields hmm. so interesting but they're completely invisible and you don't really see them but so they're really hard to uh study so they're trying to develop ways to like predict where they'll be or how to detect them so they can study them further so is this uh these portals what what's getting them interested in the portal i mean the portal itself is interesting but someone's got to have some sort of thought of like maybe uh space travel faster than the speed of light or faster than the speed of light okay, so that's what they're trying basically. to okay yeah. nice i mean that's that's what i find so crazy about the story is that it is real like we can it happens mm -hmm. so it's not like physically impossible mm -hmm. so now that it's possible like how do you do it this kind of thing mm -hmm. and i feel like that's one of the you know if you know the structure of the universe or if you can understand what matter really is so like going into i believe in the vacuum mm -hmm. it's been referred to as like the ether before and but just empty space mm -hmm. you know and what that exactly is i think that all structure of the universe is derived from empty space mm -hmm. so it's you're talking about the stuff between the stuff yeah the stuff that we think we uh can measure you know, matter mm -hmm. and planets and, you know, this pen and this, you know, this can of soda or whatever. You're talking about everything, all the space in between. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's this thing. Uh, have you heard the Planck's constant? Yes. So the Planck's constant is uh, basically it's it turns the uh, um, electromagnetic spectrum. It's not smooth. It's a step function. So there's only certain... Um, like, so in the visual spectrum, there's only certain electromagnetic energy states that can be occupied. Mm -hmm. so yeah, right there. It's the ultraviolet catastrophe. Is that if energy could occupy, if a photon could occupy every possible energy level, by the time it gets to the ultraviolet spectrum, it'd be 
infinite energy. Mm. And so, yeah, Max Planck, he basically, he kind of fudged the numbers. He just put in a number that made the calculations match what we actually see. And that's what the Planck's constant is. But basically how I read that is that every, all matter, so everything made of energy and we know mass and energy are interchangeable. So all mass and energy are multiples of the Planck's constant. Mm -hmm. And so why that matters to me is that everything in between those energy levels is what I would call vacuum. It's the insulator. So it's what keeps everything, it has to overcome that insulator to jump to the next energy level. So it's just the same like an electric circuit or whatever, you know, like the, they like put air gaps in a circuit. And so that the, um, so the conduction is better. Well, no, it's so, uh, that the, um, the voltage difference has to be so big before it can actually jump. It's like an action down. potential. Yeah, yeah, exactly. An it's an exactly an action potential. Yeah. So that a certain amount of energy has to be built up before overcoming this barrier, this insulating layer yep. to reach the next one. Yep. And I think that the, that's all of reality is that, and, but that it's a, I don't think that the, like the electromagnetic spectrum, you know, goes up into like x-rays and then goes down or, you know, microwaves and stuff and then goes down to infrared and, you know, higher wavelengths to lower wavelengths. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that entire spectrum is interesting. If if the listeners just want to Google that, you know, uh, light spectrum, you'll see a, a big diagram that's really, you know, quite long, and then it'll have this little sliver um, on the uh, lights, the part of the spectrum that we can actually perceive with our uh, inborn senses. You know, we yeah. we have uh, equipment and stuff that can that can sense things out. A little bit further but still there's a lot of in between mm -hmm. in between all those different uh, demarcations along the spectrum um, so yeah you're postulating that and I've, I've heard this a couple places before too but very interesting um, that the space in between the stuff mm -hmm. that that is what really makes up the universe that's yeah. that I mean and it makes sense the the matter that we know of in the universe occupies what like two percent of everything and then 98 percent is empty space well it makes yeah. a lot more sense that the majority would be holding that structure in place more so than the two percent yes yeah. right um and that's where i think the sacred geometry comes in is that the flower of life is literally the structure of the vacuum mm. interesting I'm wondering if uh, I'd love to hear from like a structural engineer or something, and if he could take a look at he or she could take a look at um, some of the, the geometric patterns and shapes of like the Flower of Life and the Fibonacci spiral, and just test to see if those are like uh, some of the strongest um, shapes structurally. So maybe the the shape of the Flower of Life, the specific uh, curvature of the lines, can hold a lot more capacity than uh, you know, maybe a skinnier oval or something. Mm -hmm. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Um, so I want to jump back to the portals just for a second because that's super interesting. Yeah. So the portals that you're talking about um, are are different from the from black holes that we're studying. Yes. Okay. That's what I thought because um, as far as I've heard, scientists believe that if we went towards a black hole thinking it was a portal, once we reach the event horizon, we would be completely ripped apart and we don't know what happens after that, right? Yeah. So we don't know if you would travel through the hole and end up somewhere else in like a different location, different multiverse, universe, whatever. Um, the black hole is sort of a big question mark, whereas the portals, yeah. it sounds like now they, 
they think that it does lead to a direct location somewhere else out in space. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So if you traveled through it, you would actually end up somewhere. Yeah. Okay. So I think the thing is, like, you could, like, why it's not really useful and maybe not big news or whatever is uh, that basically if you took one of these portals that are near Earth, you'd just end up right in the sun, and that's not a... That's not exactly a place you want to be right you now. So it doesn't really work that way. And it might be that you need these massive electromagnetic fields interacting to actually, you know, it's like you're going from one place of interaction to another place of interaction between the same electromagnetic fields. Mm-hmm. That's how I interpret that. Uh, so one of the things that article talks about is that the um, Aurora Borealis, you know, the, uh, the green lights we see is actually maybe this, uh, Super, uh, the stream of ultra excited particles mm-hmm. that portaled here from the sun, and that's why they're very excited and hitting, and why we can see them. Interesting. I just watched, uh, if you haven't seen this already, I think it's on Netflix called um, One Strange Rock with Will Smith. So, mm-hmm. Will Smith narrates this, this, document, this documentary series about the planet Earth. And honestly, uh, it's based off of this whole idea of perspective, right? So, he talks about, um, he interviews these uh, eight. I think it's eight astronauts who spent over, uh, you know, thousands of days in space and how being away from the earth has changed their perspective of what life on earth means and what, you know, that the earth is a giant organism in and of itself. Um, and how it's changed that perspective. But yeah, they taught, they talk about, um, what you were just referring to, uh, in right in the show. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the Aurora Borealis, that I think in the show they said that it was, uh, you know, maybe sun sunbursts coming off the sun, yeah. right? Like a big burst of energy that radi- and actual like radiation coming to the earth and then reacting with particles in our atmosphere to create the, uh, the colors and the waves mm-hmm. and the movement. Um, so, yeah, but you're, you're bringing in a whole other aspect of um, the the uh, the idea of how did they get here the transportation method right did they yeah. just travel over long periods of time and space to get here or were they portaled here um, somehow is that where you're yeah yeah that's what the article brings up that's a possibility okay. I don't think they're they're not saying that's like for sure what it is but I think they've definitely said that could definitely explain that phenomenon interesting so talk more about um, what you think the ether and to the listeners we're not talking about the drug ether you know we're talking about ether spelled with an a a e t h e r but this is a a term that's been used to um sort of describe this in between space that mm-hmm. we don't we don't know much about it at all i mean we've taken um i think microwave radiation pictures of the big bang and been mm-hmm. able to see uh microwave radiation from uh, billions of years ago and that kind of shows us what looks like uh, you know, uh, neurons in a brain. That's pretty cool. Uh, and the connections between matter. Um, and then we also have uh, different ways to take pictures of the space in universe using x-rays and things like that as well, but not much. We're still, you know, on the fence and don't know much about, you know, things like dark matter and dark energy and how these play into the nothingness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so can you speak a little bit to, to what you know about that? About like, what you, yeah. how you think about it, the emptiness? So I was going back to it. What I, I believe in relation theory. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever. It's kind of like it's part of like general relativity and stuff like that. That, like you can't define an object singularly by itself. It's always that object's relation to everything else. Mm-hmm. 
so like one of the things to me is like uh, by uh, describing night you inherently describe what day is too mm -hmm. they're co-defining mm -hmm. so like for light to exist darkness also has to exist you see, like mm -hmm. it's um, it's a balance. It's a balance, yeah. And it's, it's like the yin yang theory. Yeah, almost like uh, have you seen ever seen those pictures of like a, like there's a white vase in the middle, but then um, in the empty space, the black space are, is two faces looking at each other, right? So they mm -hmm. both define each other. Um, the different spaces do, yeah. and you can't have one without the other. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So from that, I think you can you can make the argument that because something exists, nothing has to exist. They're co-defining in that way. Mm. And you know, it's like the concept of zero. How that was very revolutionary for math. Yeah, talk about that a little bit. You were telling me a little bit about the history of the the number zero. Oh yeah, there's a. I read it a long time ago. It's like, it's a book called The Origin of Zero, I think, and it talks about how, um, how that, basically, you know, because the ancient Greeks they didn't have a zero in their um, numerical system. They just started with the numeral one. Yep. And so, but, you know, as you know, like, especially with a lot of algebra and, um, like, you know, uh, setting a function equal to zero, like how that helps you solve the function. Mm -hmm. So you can see where X lies when, or where Y lies when X is zero. Mm -hmm. um, Again, relationalism. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, like, the concept of zero was kind of, like, discovered. And before that, you were limited in what math you could do. And so now we, like, you know, zero is fundamental to our whole understanding. It's almost a center or a cornerstone. Yeah. Um, what about, uh, like, things like negative numbers? Did they have those before zero, or um, or was that a concept afterwards? I wonder, yeah, I wonder if that, if that was a progression off of the discovery of zero, or if that was there beforehand, and then all of a sudden we, we discovered this nothingness piece, yeah. like, right in between negative and positive numbers. I think there is a concept, like, you know, it's like... Uh, you owe me I uh, you owe me five apples, but you only have three apples now, so you owe me two apples later. That's kind of like a negative number mm -hmm. in terms of like you know mm -hmm. bartering like balance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So maybe in that sense, they have a concept like you know we've always had a concept of negative. But there was no concept of like hey we're square we're at zero. Oh you yeah. Know? Like I paid you off. You know. Huh. That's interesting. I wonder how that uh, how that factored into people's minds back then when they were buying and selling and yeah. and paying up debts. Okay, so go on. The history of zero. So they discover it, and it... yeah, I believe it was in uh, like the Arab world was dis uh, what discovered zero. But um, you know, but basically, it's very fundamental in you know math now. And I think that the idea, like the concept of zero, plays into nothingness. You know, right? That's what the idea is, and that I think that's like a physical quality as well. Is that there's nothingness in this universe which i think you can see when you look up in space there's a whole bunch of black and you know dots of stars here and there mm -hmm. you know and like we were talking about earlier is that most of the universe is empty space or dark, what we dark matter dark yeah. energy what we think is nothingness what we yeah. think is empty actually contains a whole hell of a lot yeah there's a lot of data in that nothingness okay. so uh what's interesting is that uh so I take the idea of, uh, of the Planck's constant, everything being multiple, so everything in between mm -hmm. is uh, the vacuum. Mm -hmm. So there's this mathematician named uh, George Cantor who had the idea of that there's two different types of infinites. 
So there's actually a larger and a smaller infinite. Hmm. And so uh, what he was saying is that there's like listable, or they called it countable, but it's better to understand it as listable infinites, and then there's unlistable infinites. So the Planck's constant would be a listable infinite because it's all multiples of the Planck's constant. It's defined. Or L energy, or yeah, energy is a, a listable infinite. Mm -hmm. But the vacuum is actually an unlistable infinite. So it's a bigger infinite than physical matter is. Because it's undefinable. Yeah. As of yet. Well, it's unlistable. You can always make the list bigger. So, and you can look at George Cantor, and it's like a whole proof. The way I found, about, found out about it is uh, this uh, number file YouTube channel. They break down like pretty cool like math concepts and hmm. everything. But pretty much how it, you can always add a new number uh, to... Uh, so basically how it breaks down is uh, the cardinal numbers, you know, 1, 2, 3, to infinity, mm -hmm. and going the other way into negative infinity. Mm -hmm. That's a listable infinite. It's They're countable. Mm -hmm. But the amount of values possible between 0 and 1 is an unlistable infinite or a bigger infinite. Because it would go on forever. Yeah, you can, the thing is you can always add like a zero in between all the numbers, mm -hmm. and then now that's a different number mm -hmm. from the listed number b below it. Wow. So I apply that to the Planck's constant, and that says that the, you know, so matter and energy is a smaller infinite than the vacuum between it. And so that could be a way to describe why it would have so much more inherent energy is because it can occupy infinitely more energy levels than mm -hmm. matter can i mean that that spurs questions in my mind of potentials for extracting infinite amounts of energy from that space mm -hmm. but also you know i think there's infinite positives that could come from that but also an infinite amount of negative things disastrous things that could come from it as well yeah um so we need to be wary of those <laughs> infinites as well you know um having an inherent uh creative or constructive quality versus a destructive quality yeah when you talk about nothingness my mind immediately goes to my background and training in buddhism and in buddhism one of the major theories that, that they espouse is that you know um that we are essentially empty where uh you know when in metaphysics and and physics is um proving this these days and quantum physics and stuff is showing that you know this flesh suit that I call a body right now that I think is solid and physical again just like the rest of the universe it's 99% um, empty space yeah. you know um, every single atom in my body is 99% empty space what I'm seeing and what I'm touching and what I can feel and what feels like I can't pass my fingers through is just empty space um, yeah. the majority of it and that's what Buddhists have been saying for a long long time many thousands of years and um, you know the Dalai Lama said once and, and I, I brought to this again because of what you said about empty space this nothingness and the concept of zero someone asked him um you know how do i turn my negative thinking into positive thinking uh, and the dalai lama said well you can't just go from a negative mind state to a positive mind state you have to find the space between the mind states first in order to make the transition oh, that's um, yeah you can't just jump from one to the other but you have to um, find your find like a baseline mental state. So if you're feeling really sad, you go into meditation 
and dissolve the emotion of sadness, right? So then you have no emotion. It's just empty or void of emotion. It's almost like a neutral space. And then from there, you can build on or jump to a positive mindset or a positive emotion. So he says that you have to have this neutral space in between for that transition to happen, that you can't just go from one to the other. And that makes a lot of sense with this zero theory, right? That it's a, it's a necessity and the nothingness is a necessity. The structure in between is a necessity for either of the extremes to happen in the first place. So then when you, when you've brought this idea, um, to my attention, it brought me back to, uh, some of my psychedelic experiences uh, with ketamine and going into uh, what people call K-holes where I'm totally disassociated from my body and I've had a couple visionary experiences where my question going in was just to be open and, and to show me the workings of the universe like just show me how it works and um, I've been shown a lot of different metaphorical images um, but they all give me the sense or the feeling that the substance the true the true nature of consciousness and what I'm looking for to to experience as a human being is everything in between. You know, it's not um, it's not you know not the things that we think it is. You know, we're looking at the wrong, we're studying the wrong things. You know, that's the message that I'm getting, and then yeah. we need to look inside. We need to look in between, uh, read between the lines. If you know, you could say that too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, you know, when you brought that to me, it, it, I think in people out there hearing this right now um, and thinking about themselves and who they think they are as a physical being, I think might have their their whole concept of self flipped on its head. You know, when you when you can admit and acknowledge that it's a fact that you are 99 percent empty space, then what does that leave? Then what are you? Yeah. If you are point zero 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 one percent of what you think you are, what does that make you? Does that make you a human? Does that make you a spirit or a soul? Does that make you worthwhile? Does that make you of value to the entire cosmos? Like, what is that? What? Yeah. It's a big. It's a. It's a big. Um, it's a big thing you bring to the table. You yeah. know, it can disrupt a lot of people's sense of self, but I think it's a healthy thing that you bring it to the table because it's the truth. It, it is what science is showing us. And unfortunately, um, the masses are not educated to, to a lot of these concepts. Yeah. Well, you know what I run into when I try to like talk to this about some people is I get the feeling that some people like genuinely don't really care. You know, they don't really care what the structure of the universe is. They don't, you know. It's just not something they're interested in. And I find so, that too. Yeah. So, you know, it's one of those things I don't really get it because, like, you know, the structure you live in the universe, why wouldn't you want to understand it? You know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, like personal difficulties too. Like, there's untold, like, you know, benefit to knowing how the world works better, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So. Again, like, if they're life hacks. Yeah. Right? The exactly. more you know, the more agency you can have over making and creating change for yourself whether it's on a uh, level you can see and sense or if it's on a metaphysical vibrational level right we have so much more impact over healing over performance over um, mood states emotion states over how we process things we have a lot more control over that than we give ourselves credit for yeah you know and i think a lot of people are just sort of either don't care or are oblivious to those superpowers that they have, 
yeah. um, or have never been taught or educated that they have those things available to them or that that's even a thing to study. You know, I think that's unfortunate. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do with this podcast is, is begin to open a few minds up to the possibility that they are so much more than they think they are, right? And that yeah. the, their potential is endless. It's really cool. Um, so what, this concept of geometry, I'm, I'm right on board with you there that, uh, you know, it's not only the, the structure of things like um, sacred geometry, Metatron's cube and um, flower of life and stuff, but it's the space in between that's holding it together. Mm-hmm. So I'm right on board with you there. Do you think that, do you think that we can apply any of these geometrical um, theories to the structure of the universe to, um, to more ethereal concepts that may not be able to be measured by, you know, the, the, the tools that we have now. So like we can apply sacred geometry to plant life, right? So mm-hmm. we can, we can look at a sunflower and see the Fibonacci spiral and in, in the, um, you know, how it, how it blooms. And we can see this all throughout all sorts of different nature. And, you know, the Fibonacci, uh, you know, the, the golden ratio in like, um, the thorax of, of ants and like how, how our limbs are, are all, mm-hmm. you know, uh, according to a specific mathematical structure. Do you think we can apply this to concepts like the mind or emotion or perception itself? Things that, that don't necessarily have a definable structure per se, but, um, I don't know. I think that that could be interesting. I don't think I've ever heard of anybody applying some of these concepts to things like that. Well, so one of the things I'd say is like, uh, what I think the flower of life is, is like uh, how, because, you know, light travels in straight lines. It always propagates in straight lines anyway. But we always think of it as like a single beam, like a laser being shot through two, you know, slits or something like that. Uh but what light really is, is it propagates in spheres. Mm. So it's straight lines that move in spheres is what I think like the, the macro interaction of photons is. And so that's what the flower of life is, is when you look at it, it's straight lines within a sphere. And that mm. sphere is, grows like a fractal. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like tetrahedrons, you know, all those straight lines they build, the double tetra- mm. tetrahedron. It's like a ripple effect. Yeah. But, you know, we know that light, it doesn't, it's not just, you know, lasers are. You know, lasers are a straight beam of, you know, energetic photons. But, like, this lamp over here, it's actually, the light isn't, it's propagating in a sphere. Mm-hmm. And we also know that, well, light doesn't, or light doesn't always go in a straight line, right? Like, if it, if it goes through an exceptionally strong magnetic field or a black hole or, or something, hole, it, yeah. it'll bend. It'll bend, but space-time bends with it. That's the, that's the thing about general relativity is that everything... It's not, light isn't just the only thing bending, space time is mm-hmm. bending with it. So, relative to that space time, it's still traveling straight. It's sure. Kinda... So, if you're in, yeah, if you're in that curve at the moment, it would see, still seem like it's going straight. Yeah, because yeah. everything else is curving with it. Sure. Um, but, oh, how I was saying it connects to the metaphysical is that, you know, these are just photons propagating, and photons are known as the, uh, they're like the force carrier. For electrons, the electromagnetic field. Mm. Um, so you know, like between two electrons, that like that force, or you know, like the force of me and my finger, that repulsive force, you know, the electromagnetic force. What carries those uh, 
that force, the force particle, you know, the carrying force particle is photons, is light. Mm -hmm. So I think of consciousness to me is defined as like uh, the action potential, the electrochemical signal in your brain. Mm -hmm. uh, it would seem to me that consciousness would be more the electric, you know, the electrical side of it than the chemical. Mm -hmm. Just because I can input different chemicals, but the electrical impulse is the thing that gets excited and that's inherent in the neuron. Mm -hmm. So I consider my consciousness to be in a, like just a complex net of electrical impulses, and that's what I consider to be me. Mm. So I would see that if that's how photons propagate in this reality, I imagine that affects how, you know, since the photons are the same structure in my brain that they probably you know the signal possibly propagates like that as well hmm very interesting um i like the perspective that you take with uh you know you bring in electrochemical reactions right but mm -hmm. but then you separate out <laughs> electrical and chemical and you know they are interwoven in electric electrochemical mm -hmm. uh, reactions but almost like the chemical is the output or the the outcome of the the electric storm that's happening, mm -hmm. right? Um, but is electric, yeah, is that electric current, does that hold substance itself, or is that part of that empty space ether? And if you are, if your consciousness and who you think you are in that sense is this electric storm or the action potential, are you the electrical current that crosses that gap, or are you that gap itself? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, we have to travel through the vacuum, you know, you have to travel through the vacuum to go anywhere, mm -hmm. you know, like even physically, I would mm -hmm. say. Um, so we're electrons interacting with the vacuum, and maybe it's that interaction that's us, is that both of them are. Mm -hmm. Is that going in, in between? You know, that we're coded. So one of the things, like, and I brought up a quote of it. Uh, like, I was just reading a recent article about um, space-time. And, like, uh, this one Brian Swingle, he wrote in a 2018 annual review of condensed uh, matter physics. He was uh, postulating that space-time and gravity ultimately emerged from something else. So he's talking about that, you know, they're not the inherent structure of the mm -hmm. universe, that it has to it be derived from it's something It's the result else. of something. Yeah. It's the result of some other interaction. Some other interaction. Interesting. And uh, he argues that it's actually quantum entanglement is the interaction. But, you know, quantum entanglement's the, you know, it's produced uh, by the same source, but, you know, it'll interact even over vast distances. Mm -hmm. Let's... Uh... That's, that's opening up a whole new can of, yeah. can of worms. So let's get in, into that in the next segment. Uh, for, li for you listeners out there, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back with segment two with Patrick. As we take a quick break from Conversations with the Mind, I just want to let you know that this award-winning episode of the podcast is brought to you by MindOps. So go check out the MindOps website, M-I-N-D-O-P-S. Now back to the show. All right, we're back from our commercial break with Patrick Gorman for segment number two of episode 45, Conversations with the Mind. So we left off 
trying to still define um, using uh, biochemistry a little bit what consciousness could be as it fits into this model, right? So we were talking about action potentials, and you know these are these are the processes, the electrochemical processes that happen between neurons um, in the brain and in the body. You know where where um, you know it will build up a certain amount of energy before it has some sort of electrical current that gets sent to the next neuron and that's how it sort of communicates along this chain and initiates action whether it's thought action or recall memory action or physical action in our muscles and things like that but you were saying that you know the electrochemical signaling at the beginning of the potential as well as uh, at the outcome of the potential when it lands on that other neuron that these two endpoints these nodal points um, this is really what we we've been focusing our study on in a lot of biochemistry I think is mm -hmm. is what is what goes into the interaction and what comes off the interaction right but there's this gap in between where that energy transfers from one to the other and that it could be this space in between that uh, you know this movement of, of energy from one to another that could be what actually you know life is or consciousness is or you know the perpetuation of energy or the perpetuation of potential is really what's going on literally mm -hmm. but that that could be the essence of, of what consciousness is and you were just about to get into quantum entanglement and how that relates to this as well mm -hmm. yeah so uh, in that article that uh, Swingle uh, mm -hmm. Brian Swingle I think I said he was talking about quantum entanglement and how that he thinks that the uh, uh, gravity and uh, space-time are derived from it. And so he was kind of talking about that instantaneous communication mm -hmm. that is implied that it's actually going through, it's traveling through a substance. Uh, that's why it's faster than light. Like a conductor, almost yeah. like, uh, like if you were to run electricity through water, it's a better conductor than electricity through air. Yeah. Right? So this ether substance is, a, is maybe composed of something else or thicker it's a better conductor yeah okay and so that's like what he was trying to explain because it is like faster than light communication so that's why i think too is like there seems to be a debate about whether things can go faster than the speed of light when we seem to have already shown that and that's why was it einstein who called it spooky action at a distance I think it was Niels Bohr. Niels Bohr, something okay. like that. But uh, Einstein had his own theories too, yeah. and he thought it was a weird occurrence. Um, you know, when when you manipulate one atom that has been entangled with an, with another atom all the way across the planet, that they seem to have reactions simultaneously. Yeah. So when you change the spin of one particle, the spin of the other particle changes too at the same time. Instantaneously, instantaneously. not not even like a microsecond afterwards, but simultaneously. Yeah. And they're saying, you know, quantum physicists will say that these particles have been entangled quantumly. So you affect one, and it happens to the other one. Yeah. Um, you're saying that that there's uh, there may be some some other theories around that too. Yeah. I, what I think it is, and like, um, he doesn't really, they don't really bring up vacuum, uh, but is that uh, it travels through the vacuum, that the actual structural space, that it's uh, through a substrate that's like not dependent on space or time. Mm -hmm. And that's why it seems instantaneous to us because it's independent of time. Mm -hmm. Almost uh, interdimensional. Yeah, literally interdimensional. Mm -hmm. Going into what I, uh, really think about the electromagnetic spectrum 
and how this all plays into this is what I think and this is like counter to Big Bang Theory and like origins of the universe and everything but what I think it is is that uh, energy is coming through stars from a higher dimension and it's releasing energy into this dimension and energy is constantly being absorbed, readmitted, absorbed, readmitted until it gets to a lower energy level. That's what we call entropy. Is that this constant going to a lower energy level until it gets trapped into a black hole and a black hole is just the opposite of a sun and that it's uh, um, energy going down into the next like uh, dimensional level, the next fractal level of reality. So the energy coming through stars maybe being transported right mm-hmm. through portals or through some other um some other uh substrate um coming through and it's almost like the star is an expression or it's like a like a generator right that's mm-hmm. channeling this energy through and putting it out into th- our 3d uh yeah. dimension but then you uh with the black holes if it's going you know if it Maybe are the are the black holes the collectors of energy, right? Because everything mm-hmm. that goes into it, everything falls in. Right. Not even light escapes the event, mm-hmm. event horizon. That's why it's black. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a so there's this thing. It's called Hawking radiation. That there, it's theoretical, completely theoretical. So Stephen Hawking was working on it. He does he did a lot of work on uh, most of his work on black holes. Mm-hmm. But it's this uh, theoretical radiation that has to come out of a black hole because uh the conservation of matter right like what for entropy is like you know matter can be neither created nor destroyed it only changes form Mm -hmm. so that's why there's this theoretical hawking radiation is that there's information going into this black hole so something has to come back out to conserve you know to keep the conservation of energy in this uh closed system as they consider our universe Mm -hmm. So if information's going in, it has to come back out, but they don't see any mm-hmm. Hawking radiation. We've never measured it. It's purely theoretical. I don't think that there is any information coming out because I think we're, our universe isn't a closed system. It's an open system, and it's an open system that flows into the next uh, universe. That's the next dimensional the next space. next dimensional space, yeah. And it kind of mm-hmm. plugs into what I was talking about, action potential as well, because what I think why energy comes how energy comes from like the upper level and comes to our lower level is because it overcomes that action potential between that sep the vacuum or the insulator between the two uh the two dimensions mm-hmm. and the reason i think that is uh the planck's constant going back to that one is that the reason why we that's the smallest unit of measurement possible in our reality basically is that it's the smallest divisible thing that interacts with our universe is pretty much what it's saying. Mm-hmm. So what I think that black hole is, it's going into, you know, like it's going past the Planck's constant to the next possible energy levels. Sure. Down. So then each dimension would contain different energy levels, different uh, frequency bands. Yep. Right? And um, what I'm imagining now is... It almost you almost have to imagine the universe. Well, for me anyway, I, I almost have to imagine the universe as like a f- like a flat disc, like a pancake that has some depth to it a little bit. But mm-hmm. then multiple universes stacked on top of each other. Like if yeah. you were to stack up Oreos, 
right? And then, or uh, stacks, uh, slices of Swiss cheese. Mm -hmm. And then each of the holes in the Swiss cheese is like these black hole uh, portals or portals through suns into, yeah. the, into the higher level or the lower level uh, dimension. Yeah. Right? That's so interesting um, because it plays, I think it plays very nicely into the idea of, uh, you know, how people have found like 11 different dimensions happening simultaneously in the same space. Mm -hmm. But that, you know, maybe these universes are not stacked on top of each other, but layered within each other, right? And that they're happening all around us all the time, but we just cannot pick up on them. We don't have the sensory organs or the capabilities to do so. And that maybe psychedelics allow us, or meditation can allow us to tap into or see these dimensional spaces, um, these other frequency bands, mm -hmm. you know, and almost create our own little individual wormholes yeah for at least 12 hours at a time interesting um what is your take on or do you know anything about um the study of cymatics or uh, have you ever heard of that mm -hmm. so cymatics no. is the study of like um sound and frequency frequency and vibration on matter um so they'll vibrate water or they'll vibrate sand on like a metal plate and with different frequency or hertz ranges it will create geometrical patterning you know mm -hmm. every time you hit like 433 hertz and uh, or whatever it'll create that specific shape oh yeah, yeah. right so you've seen mm -hmm. you've seen demonstrations like that um and that's a you know it's been around for a long time but it's picking up a lot more in interest uh in the research realm and i'm interested to see where the science goes no i mean we know we've known for a long time that everything is energy and that everything is frequency and vibration of that energy um even thoughts you know our thoughts uh once thought of as just these you know free-floating things actually have uh, vibration that go out of our skull that leave our skull when we have a thought we can measure this on eegs and things um brainwave states and things like this so um yeah we're literally shooting thought beams out of our head that are interacting with the vibration and frequency of matter all around us and with with you and your body and with my dog and you know so the power of our thoughts really takes on a whole new a whole new dimension right when yeah. we when we know that um, our thoughts have this quality yeah right? they're like tangible in a way exactly so you know a positive thought uh, and it's just like a lock and key mechanism you know a positive thought will have a very specific vibration that will only you know um, be received by the same um, frequency the same shape the same patterning mm -hmm. right and that's what that'll that's what will be reflected back to you so that's what we mean by like the law of attraction or the secret or manifesting like things. resonance right? exactly resonance so you put positive things out into the universe you get positive things back right mm -hmm. you put out negative things out into the universe you get negative things back and that this goes back to you know the the direct study of frequency and vibration um i'm really interested to hear what you think about this too but also where the science is going to take us as far as like um you know how far can we break down our understanding of reality and consciousness and matter knowing that all these things are simply vibrations they're all essentially the same thing yeah yeah what do you think well i definitely think everything is just a, a type of vibration and frequency mm -hmm. you know um that's my whole thing about the like you know looking at the electromagnetic spectrum it's like you know it defines so much of our reality and it's like just a small slice of it but all of that is you know there's frequency there's wavelength and that's how we determine and like separate and define the different parts of it mm -hmm. 
and uh, yeah, sorry, I lost my no, train of thought. That's so good. So what what particularly interests you about um, like quantum physics and metaphysics? Because um, a lot of quantum physics is this vibration and frequency stuff. All right. Um, what interests me about it? Yeah. What I mean, what's what's particularly interesting to you? Because for me, like, uh, uh, quantum entanglement was a huge, like, big interesting yeah. thing. For you, not so much. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what are, what are your particular interests in the field? Well, my compi- uh, I like the idea of, like, that you can find some sort of pattern mm-hmm. in, the, like, the frequency and wavelength and how they propagate. And, like, you know, this, like, base algorithm to how the world works. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like it's deeply rooted in understanding frequency, wavelength, and how things interact like that. Mm-hmm. You know, like interference patterns and, you know, like the how two waves interact with each other is kind of like how everything, like we were saying, that this is electromagnetic force. I'm not actually touching this table. It's being, there's this repulsive force here, but it's mm-hmm. kind of dictated by those, like, you know, the polarity and, like, the rotation mm-hmm. of those electromagnetic fields. Man, when I was a kid, I knew about that, uh, that interaction um when i was a kid and i used to play these mean games with my brother where i'd be like messing with him or or poking him or giving him noogies or whatever and he'd yell to my mom shane won't stop touching me and i was like i'm not actually touching you you know there's there's space in between our fingers yeah you know and uh being right about that when i was when i was a kid (laughs) yeah so that's interesting um yeah quantum physics is so it's so vast you know we, we yeah. were only scratching the surface well and i've looked at it too because like pretty much quantum physics is the standard model mm-hmm. and the standard model it's it's pretty much just like a list of how particles interact with each other and it's like all empirically found mm-hmm. so pretty much what quantum physics is is just this huge table of like you know interactions math. yeah that's you know written in math that you know looks alien basically well mm-hmm. to me anyway you know it's like I don't even know what level math it is, but I'm sure it's crazy. But, you know, it's just like a bunch of symbols and stuff. But, you know, basically, like, from what I'm told, it's just listing out how these particles interact with each other based on experiments people have done. And that's why it kind of, it's always, like, counterintuitive on how, like, you know, the whole causality. I don't know if you've seen in the news recently, they're talking about how uh, they think they've, you know, you can make a... Uh, virtual particle go backwards in time and how things can they can find the measurement of something before they even measure it interesting yeah it's tell me more about that so it's like um they've been doing experiments where like you can find a measurement even before you even do the measurement it's like this weird it's one of the like spooky properties of this like study of quantum physics that, it's like a predictability yeah or that causality is going the other way or that, you know, time isn't flowing the same way that mm-hmm. it does for us. That maybe, like, time isn't as smooth, you know, as mm-hmm. we think. It's not the smooth trudging forward. You right. know? It's not linear. It's not linear. And that maybe at the very, very small, it travels backwards sometimes. I like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and Buddhist philosophy, again, you know, I always go back to Buddhist philosophy. They believe that past, present, and future are all existing simultaneously. Yeah. Right? And we have the ability to time travel. We can literally do it, I mean, in our minds. You know, we, we've taken uh, functional brain imaging of people in visualization 
uh, versus people actually in the experience and the brain doesn't know the difference uh, you can literally trick the brain into believing that you're doing something by um, doing your own imagery with it as long as it's realistic in your mind right so that's why we can get mental reps by you know running through a judo or jujitsu technique over and over and over in our mind as long as we do it you know um, it's we trick our brain into thinking that we're actually doing it on the mat you know so it's it's very interesting um, I forgot where I was going with that <laughs> but uh, yeah that's that's so fascinating um, yeah where was I going with that Buddhism uh, past, past, present, and future. future. Yeah. yeah, so they they believe that you could time travel um, by, you know, thinking about a past memory and then making it so real in your mind that you have the ability to go back into that time and space and affect change somehow with with a developed skill set or go into some future, right? Which is pretty That'd interesting. Be really cool. Yeah. So I think the the power of the mind is is fascinating, and it goes beyond the brain for sure. The brain mm -hmm. is just some some tool it's an amazing tool and a, maybe it's like a frequency modulator or yeah. a filter or something that sort of a tuning fork that tunes yeah. these frequencies it's like the hardware for the software of our consciousness right but i think the mind space or consciousness space uh which could be the same or could be different also mm. uh, is where we can really really make some awesome changes and strides in humanity and our evolution mm. if we can figure out how to engage with it a little bit better so I've heard that like Buddhism really supports the like simulation theory, or mm -hmm. I, I've heard that said mm -hmm. before. And like one of the really interesting things I find about uh, simulation theories, I don't know if you ever heard Elon Musk's argument for that the chance we're in base reality is like one in billions. Mm -hmm. So that like you know statistically speaking, we're probably in a simulation right now. Mm -hmm. One of the other things I found very interesting about that is. Uh, the open AI project he has they had this one uh, they had an issue where they wanted to uh, they have a robotic arm that uh, they want to teach to how to manipulate objects in real life but they were trying to you know program uh, you know an artificial intelligence to like learn faster or it but what they were noticing is that it wasn't actually it wasn't manipulating the uh, square any very well and it wasn't learning very quickly you know especially when you compare it to like a human baby who's never touched anything but mm -hmm. they have inherent we all have inherent uh, manipulation of our uh, extremities that they were even having trouble programming in a mm -hmm. robot mm -hmm. one of the ways they overcame that was uh, this concept of changing the domain so uh, what it basically entails is that they run simulations where like they change they change the domain, so like they change the size of the hand manipulating. They change the size of the uh, the cube. They change the gravity of that world. They change the color. They change every little like you know physical aspect of it, mm -hmm. and then they run all of those simulations simultaneously, like in the uh, for the artificial intelligence to try all those different combinations. Mm -hmm. And when they did that, the robot was learning way faster, uh, and almost had like an inherent. Uh, like understanding of how to manipulate the cube. So again, maybe the human brain is able to hold in its space all the different potentialities and all the different things that could happen yeah. if it was different with all these different variables and it's able to hold that simultaneously into this one cohesive model yeah. to where it can learn. 
yeah, maybe the robots are unable to make those things come together and it can probably do these things separately very well, but then when they combine them, it did it very well. Yeah. You know, almost human-like. And it's really interesting, like, if we live in a simulation in this, like, multiple dimensional theory is that there's all these um, universes that are, are coexisting that are all these just, like, slightly different changes mm -hmm. in, like, you know, the the level of gravity mm -hmm. or the balance of matter to antimatter, you know, like all those different possibilities exist simultaneously, mm -hmm. just like in the simulation uh, that they're building. Because, you know, like, so when they put like an AI to learn like StarCraft or a video game or something, how it got to like s superhuman level ability is because it ran like billions and billions of games, you know, it was, you know, it was playing like a thousand games a second or something because mm -hmm. it could just speed up the time in that virtual world but you can't speed up the time in physical world you know for that mm -hmm. robot manipulating a physical object but th with things like quantum computers and things like that you probably could run simulations that are getting pretty close to what a human brain could do oh yeah yeah it's actually the argument is that the brain is like a kind of quantum computer mm -hmm. right is that where it can where it can work out all these simulations yeah. before they happen and then choose a pathway to take. Yeah. And I bring this up in other podcasts too that I think as far as we know human beings might be the only creature on this planet anyway that can run those type of simulations and then take a directive course of action. Um, I think animals are more instinctively based, they're more reactionary, mm -hmm. more reflexive in, in nature, and more linear in their thinking. Um, we might in the future see you know, things in, in animals like orcas, like whales, and um, dolphins, where they can communicate with each other and, and hunt together and strategize amongst each other as a unit um, versus working independently. We might start to see things like that as well. Um, but as far as I know, we're the only creature that can, that has that ability to run simulations. You know, our, our, our brain is far different than uh, most other animals, most other mammals or reptiles or anything. Yeah, but um, with the simulation, you know, even with that theory, right? So say we are in a simulation, and it's a very complex simulation, right? A lot of mm -hmm. different codes running right now yeah. to make this happen. But every simulation has to start with the first line of code, mm -hmm. right? So then, whether this is a simulation or not a simulation, the first line of code for existence of consciousness could be that initial frequency that initial vibration yeah. that happened somewhere in the universe, in one of the universes that sparked, you know, these ripple effects through the flower of life, like you said, fractalizing mm -hmm. out, creating more frequencies and vibrations, and now they're interacting with each other as they ripple off each other. But there was that one uh, original frequency, that one original spark of energy and frequency. And if we could trace it back to that and find out what that is, I think that might unlock so many different things uh, for us to to explore don't you think yeah you know what it reminds me of is the hindu concept of om yeah that's what i was just thinking too that the yeah. sound om the primordial sound right yeah and uh for the listeners out there who don't know that or aren't experienced in yoga or anything um if you see that symbol around i'm sure you've all heard people say om before right maybe jokingly but um yeah, the way it's theorized is that that sound, that frequency, is that original sound that pervades yeah. everything, and it's almost like um, imprinted on the on the metaphysical DNA of everything. 
right? And um, I'm not sure how monks utilize it as a tool, but I'm sure it can be utilized to do some really awesome things. Yeah. I know it's like it's a big part of chanting, right? And it's like to connect to mm-hmm. the primordial sound and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But there's a lot of different mantras with different chants that use different frequencies. Oh, okay. If you get a chance, you should look up uh, Tibetan throat singing. Oh, okay. It's yeah. It's really cool, like really deep. I wish I could do it. Uh, but um, yeah, they make these really cool vibrational sounds with their voice, um, and they do it at specific frequencies to do anything from, uh, you know, shamanic healing on people with sound and vibration. And we know that sound and frequency works for healing because we use it with ultrasounds all the time to break up, you know, scar tissue and gallstones and you know kidney stones and stuff like that. So sound can heal in that sense. I've heard uh, and seen, um, you know, evidence of. Tibetans using sound to levitate objects, um, using sound to do all sorts of crazy cool things that we would think are um, impossible or are miracles. But I, I just love this idea of um, studying sound and, and the idea of uh, frequency and vibration and how that's making a, a comeback yeah. in science, right? I think it's been around for a long time as oh, yeah. an idea. It makes me... Uh, Tesla was a big thing about frequency mm-hmm. and wavelength and mm-hmm. that he was... That was the end... Because, you know, all of his uh, experiments were with high frequency and trying mm-hmm. to get, uh, trying to achieve high frequencies, mm-hmm. which is what, uh, you know, like the Tesla tower or, you know, Tesla coil and all that's mm-hmm. originally for. Mm-hmm. So in, in psychology, um, we have this idea of cognition, right? You know what that is, everyday thinking. Um, and then we have another idea um, called metacognition or thinking mm-hmm. about thinking. Right, which is what we're doing a lot of in this conversation. Right, we're doing a lot of talking and theorizing and thinking about how we think as humans and and thought processes and thoughts themselves and you know emotions and all these things. Um, what is your take on you know metacognition versus cognition? And, and what do you what do you think about that? Do you think about metacognition at all? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, where my mind goes when I think of metacognition or like you know thinking about thinking is logic mm-hmm. and how we um just how we structure our thoughts mm-hmm. and like this concept of truth and how all that applies to it and logic's a relatively new idea for the human species right only a few thousand years old yeah i mean it was written uh ancient greek times right you know? and, and that's relatively the, new. the origin of ours yeah. yeah so logic is is a new way of thinking that we came up with human beings came mm-hmm. up with and somehow organized our thoughts into greater coherency. Yeah. Yeah. One of the interesting things I was reading, can't remember what from what book, uh, he was pointing out that we're all inherently logical beings because to be able to identify something as food mm-hmm. or identify an object at all is you actually have to be able to reason. So we have this concept of edible foods and then we have a concept of apple and you know, within each of those concepts, you know, like when I think of apple, I think green, I think kind of shiny, I think of the shape, you know, like all those different uh, concepts within that concept. And then I have all the, you know, food, which is, you know, taste and, you know, nourishment, all of that. And so you take that idea of apple and you take the concept of food and you combine the two, and that's how you know to eat an apple. Mm-hmm. And so inherently we all... Um, are able to reason and connect concepts because that's really all logic and thinking is, is that we just, 
we take one concept in that uh, relational theory that I was talking about mm-hmm. earlier. That's a big part of like philosophy and physics that I believe in is that, uh, you know, each concept is actually defined by all the other concepts around it. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, that thinking is really just us making this huge web of concepts. Well, and that's what I think scientific inquiry is too. Yeah. When someone comes up with a new theory in science, it's not it doesn't come out of nothingness, mm-hmm. right? It comes out. What do we say? You know, um, I only came up with this theory because I was standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. Right. There's a whole lot of other things that have to come before for something to happen, and a lot of bad theories surrounding this one thing for a good theory to emerge out of it. Right. Yeah. And so it's like it's really complicated. Like, uh, you know, one of the things is like math. You know, math is almost the because it's the definition of quantifiable you know it's like uh but math is a highly logical practice you know it's everything has to be rational everything is a step everything has to make sense you know the things have to balance on each side of the equal sign Mm -hmm. you know things that but then math sometimes like one of the questions is is math always rational or is math irrational at some point irrational numbers yeah Mm -hmm. or like you know is it always makes sense does um, does one always equal one or does one equal two sometimes? Mm. Is that, like, is that a thing? Is, uh, is math logically consistent? It was, it was one of the major questions of math. I can't remember which mathematician, but he made a list mm-hmm. of all the big questions that maybe aren't, un- that may be unanswerable mm-hmm. about math. And is it, is math logically consistent always? And for the listeners out there who might not be able to think of, like, how does one possibly equal two? Yeah. Uh, what popped in my head is, you know, the, the slit experiment with particles, yeah. right? So they measured an atom going through this slit and took pictures of it or, or uh, measurements of it. Um, and they observed it in both a wave state and, um, what is it? A, a particle. Particle state, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it was, it could be in either of those states simultaneously. And so the atom counted as one, but mm-hmm. it can also count as one of each of these things in in every moment and so yeah. it's actually two different things yeah. in, in every given moment so that's one example of how one can actually equal two things yeah mm-hmm. and you know there's like another one uh i go through you know i've been going through my old textbooks you know uh, i'm in a like an algebra so i'm just like retaking some algebra lessons mm-hmm. you know just to brush up on it and one of the identities that really bothers me is uh uh, any number to the power of zero equals one, and then the identity that uh, zero to the power of zero equals one, mm-hmm. and like you know, so uh, or like you know, zero to any power equals zero, right? Mm-hmm. Those three identities, but when you put them together, they, that's contradictory, right? If mm-hmm. you try to mix them, you know, zero to the power of zero equals one. And you can put it in your calculator, and your calculator will say that. It's been programmed to say that. It's been programmed to say that because there's an algorithm. But that doesn't make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. And it's like it seems to go counterintuitive Mm -hmm. to what the concept of zero actually is. It's almost like uh, whoever was coming up with these identities just wanted a quick, easy explanation. So there's actually a cool story about this. So the cubic formula, you know, like the quadratic formula. Quadratic equation. Mm -hmm. Quadratic equation is for, you know, uh, x to the power of 2. Well, there's a cubic formula for, you know, the power of 3. And um, 
it's actually the origin of the uh, number i, you know, the square root of negative one. Mm -hmm. So that was actually developed in Italy in the 1600s by um, Italian mathematicians using the cubic formula. But what's co what's really interesting about it is, um, so in those days, the way you would have like you know a job, a professor job at like you know a prestigious university, is you would actually like duel for the position. So like fight? Uh, no, math duel. Oh, math duel. So what would you do is you you know this guy would challenge the professor to a math duel. So he'd come up with ten questions that he knows the answers to. And then the professor would come up with 10 questions he knows the answer to. They would exchange, and whoever answers them first correctly wins. And so if the challenger wins, he gets his job. Mm. So this whole cubic formula and the power of I, uh, where this all came from, was uh, it was kind of like the nuclear option for all these uh, mathematicians because it basically allowed them to solve problems that other mathematicians couldn't solve so they could take anybody's job. But you think about that is like this major development, you know, the concept of I, all derived from these, you know, highly competitive, you know, people wanting the, you know, job security. Um, so, you know, like if you think about being in that, like their objective isn't truth and finding out what what conceptually is negative, the square root of negative mm -hmm. one, because you can't put it on a number line. What is it? What are imaginary numbers? They weren't asking that. They were just this solves the this solves the equation really quickly for me yeah. that someone else can't. And the motive was was not to further the knowledge base, with, but their motive was more uh, selfish. Like it's more uh, yeah. job security. I would argue that yeah. you know I don't know what their sure. the nature of their mind or what they actually thought, but it seems like you know in that in that setting in that environment, mm -hmm. you know it might not be your primary objective. Your primary yeah. objective is job security, eating. You know. Well, like, I think of um, philosophical debate back in uh, the time of Socrates and things like that, and in, in Greek and Rome, and um, Greece and Rome, and, and how they would debate using logic. Um, some some of them seeking truth, right? Mm -hmm. But others seeking power and position over other um, politicians and over yeah. other um, philosophers and things like that. Um, so I think it happens not just in the in the field of math, but also in uh, philosophy too. Anywhere oh, yeah. where logic is applied, mm -hmm. I think there's going to be people trying to use it in a manipulative way. Yeah, uh, and there's going to be others who are seeking truth. Oh, man, the logical fallacies. How many of those people use? in our current like you know marketing mm -hmm. campaign i probably or... use a bunch of them automatically and i don't even know about it yeah you know, joe's good at pointing out my uh, illogical fallacies a lot of the time yeah oh yeah but they're <laughs> they manipulate us all the time it's like not being able to see the you know the logically invalid argument because it's so convoluted you know i feel like that's used yeah. against people all the time sure so do you so logic back in the day was seen as like this great uh movement forward in human evolution or human consciousness mm -hmm. right the, the ability to use logic and i think since it was invented or since it was uh, formalized we've almost gotten to a point now where we're using logic too much you know and it's almost to a detriment you know because a lot of things are illogical um but also beautiful you know a lot of creativity and imagination and um, movies that we see the Avengers is an illogical movie you know by any physics standards you know yeah. but it's those things that give us joy and meaning and you know give people jobs to make those things and um, you know it sparks 
uh, like you said, ingenuity and, and imagination to do technical things and to solve even complex mathematical problems. So we need both. We need the creative, illogical sides of ourselves, but also the logical sides of ourselves. And I think, at least in the Western world, we're uh, unfortunately boosting the logical side of ourselves, the intellectual side of ourselves, at the expense of our creative self or our emotional self. Oh, yeah. And these different parts of ourselves. I think where that really comes through, too, is people like using science as almost a religion now. Totally. Like that, if if science can't prove it, it's not real. Yeah. And like I I always bring up is that there's like some very serious limitations to science. So like I would go back to what science really is is just the scientific method, mm-hmm. and the scientific method is just a like a list of how to reason. You know, or a list like of a, disproofs. Yeah. Of a theory. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, going back to like so what literally what are the literal limitations on science one of them is like it's it has to be testable what you're doing and so like the time scales have to be human you know like knowing like you know when it's like if you don't can't learn something unless you measure it for a billion like a billion years you know then science can't know that because it's we haven't even you know human science hasn't been around for a billion years mm-hmm. So, like, if it's something that has that long of an iteration, we'll just never know it, you know, or science will never know it. So, like, time scales affect... Basically, it's like everything... You have to be able to observe it with your senses. Right, and you said things that you can't measure, too, right? So that is relying on technology, right? And technology is always improving, and it's, it's it's increasing our ability to measure things, but we can only measure, like a fraction of 1% of the things out there, you know, our tools that we think are so great and teaching us so much and they are, is still super limited. Like there's a lot of things that are unmeasurable, like, you know, spirituality, you know, the concept of God is not measurable necessarily, you know, um, other things like that. Yeah. The empty space. Yep. And there's like another aspect of our reality too, that I think plays into this. It's, uh, the more you learn, the less you know in absolute terms. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that's the thing. The more you learn, the more stuff there is out there that you don't know. So one of my uh, my favorite, uh, like, visualization of that concept, because, you know, it's very, it seems counterintuitive. You know, the more you learning, the more you learn, it should mean the less there is to know out there because there should be this finite amount of stuff to know. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, so it was actually Tesla who put this uh, visualization of what's actually happening. Is imagine that uh, you put a, a lamp in the, this big dark room, and so that this light sphere, um, there's this light sphere, and then you look at the darkness touching the light sphere on the outside, and so knowledge is like increasing that light so that the light sphere gets bigger. But if you think about it, every time you make that light sphere bigger the area of black touching that sphere grows too. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the more you learn, the less you know is because the bigger that light sphere gets, so does the surface area of the black around it. And that's what I find too. The more, you know, I'll I'll have an initial question, right? And I'll go online and I'll start researching it or I'll go into books and I'll start learning about it. And I always come out the other end with way more questions than I started with. Yeah. Right? Because the more I learned about it, it spurred like a hundred questions that came off of this one. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's a great metaphor for that. Because, yeah, knowledge just keeps propagating out like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, almost fractal. Fractal, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so i got to ask you this, uh, because we haven't even talked martial arts on, the, on the, <laughs> most of the podcasts, um, and that's how I know you, is through jiu-jitsu and through the gym. So, you know, given your own unique views and perspectives on reality and the mind and um, how you experience it and how you apply it within the microcosm of yourself um, and your own learning process. Like, how do you apply all this knowledge of self and consciousness and uh, what you are with these action potentials to your physical practice of jiu-jitsu? Because I know for me, I started jiu-jitsu before I started exploring quantum physics, metaphysics, and Buddhism. Um, and my concept of jiu-jitsu back then was very rudimentary. It was very uh, limited to physical properties, physical characteristics, um, you know, large muscle movements and strength mm-hmm. and power and things like this. But then I started getting into smaller aspects of quantum and meta, or quantum physics and, and things like metaphysics and things like that. And um, now when I'm on the mats, my whole concept of what is going on during like a live rolling match is not just two bodies being physical with each other, but is all these energetic interactions and um, give and take of energy, not mm-hmm. just space, you know, not just power and exertion, but um, energetic interactions and um, quantum entanglements and infinite possibilities and potentials and logic being applied right it's it's a training ground for how do we get from one problem that we're having and how do we how do we solve the problem given the infinite possibilities to get it done mm-hmm. so how do you how do you apply all this knowledge to your martial arts and your jiu-jitsu because you come from a judo background right yeah you know a lot what of physics and judo yeah that's uh you know that that was one of my big interests is like you know, the first time you throw, like, a successful judo throw or, you know, you do a successful sweep or anything like that, it feels effortless. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's just like, wow, like, this person weighs, you know, like, oh, 200 pounds, but I just, it felt like he weighed 50 or something, you know? And it's like these force multipliers that come with it and, like, you know, points of leverage and everything, using your hips mm-hmm. to, like, you know, change as, a like, a leverage point. Right. Angles, momentum, Angles, yep. acceleration, deceleration, all these things. Yep, and momentum and the flow of energy and, like, mm-hmm. feeling. Because there's so much, like, uh, the. I have this book. It's called Best Judo. Mm-hmm. Um, most of my te- um, senseis have told me it's, like, the definitive book on judo. It was written by two uh, Olympic-level Korean uh, masters. Uh, but in it, they talk Korean about... Korean judo masters. Oh, yeah. Interesting. So mm-hmm. it did... The mastery didn't come from Japan, from its origins. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Um, they talk about, like, the eight directions of, uh, you know, possible places you could push your opponent. And then they also talk about the counter push. It's like you push them in, you push them in the, like, you know, back left direction. And because they give you resistance, you want to do the throw in, the, in your, uh, you know, back right position. Because mm-hmm. it's opposite, and that's... You're going to use their force against them. If you shove them and they try to, like, resist you, they have to push their force in that direction. So you push in that direction, and then you pull in that direction so that you use their force against them, basically. Mm-hmm. And, like, a lot of the book is setting up the throws. Kazushi is all about um, off-balancing your opponent in the right directions. 
according to like the flow of energy yeah it's almost like the path of least resistance for exactly. the energy to travel yeah right so if you if someone if you push into somebody and they push straight back but then you try and divert that energy at a 90 degree angle mm-hmm. it's going to require a lot more effort for you to make that that angle diversion rather than mm-hmm. just going back with the 180 degree push and go straight back so find the path of least resistance exactly. and then use um use the physics of the body of the anatomy of the human being uh, to your advantage to make the throw happen yeah nice yeah so i mean that's like the big physics interest i have in judo i feel like um it's been a while since i've read about it but jigoro kano the guy who discovered or you know developed judo he was actually a university student in uh, human anatomy Mm. and so he was uh well he was a kid he was young and sickly and so he wanted to develop a way to fight uh, you know, stronger, healthier kids that were picking on him, I guess. Mm-hmm. No better way to fight them than to slam them into the planet. Yeah, exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. So I, that's like the, I think that's the origins of judo pretty much. Yes. That's the story I heard anyway. So how do you apply it to jiu-jitsu? Because jiu-jitsu is different in that, right. um, you know, you're, you're integrating judo for the takedown piece, but um, there's a lot, I mean, there's, in, in, there's literally an infinite amount of approaches, sequences, mm-hmm. angles, um, rotations that can be made. There's all sorts of explorations. I have to admit, I still feel like I'm a bit novice still mm-hmm. in the jiu-jitsu because it is very similar to judo. But you know, especially when I was competing in judo and like learning it, getting ready for competitions, they would stand you up after 30 seconds. So like, if you go to the ground, if you're not doing Basically, if you're not choking them out within 30 seconds, they'll stand you back up. So I had very little interaction with the, the ground game mm-hmm. aspect. Um, but so far, like, it, yeah, it seems like there's like a, like a set sequence, you know, like, you know, there's like a, like a type of sequence you can go through with jujitsu. Like, you know, like not necessarily like a set of moves per se, but like, you know, so like you have them in, in your, um, full guard Mm -hmm. and then there's like three different positions you can go from there and then you pick one of those positions and then there's like three positions you can go from there Mm -hmm. and it's like that's the yes and no like um so yeah so you got you got the basic foundation right so you're in your you have someone in your guard and you're trying to get to to advance your position to one of the three better positions so there's there may be three better positions you can be in but there's maybe I don't know, two, three hundred different ways to get to position number one, two, three hundred different ways to get to the second position, two or three hundred different ways to get to the third. And in each of those approaches, if they block you on your approach Mm -hmm. and you have to divert your path and take a different approach, that counts as a whole approach in and of itself, right? So uh, each approach has like these, you know, there's a direct line approach to getting where you want to go, but more than more than likely, if you're going against someone who's trained, they're gonna put up defenses along the way, and so that that straight line approach to the armbar that you want to get from your guard mm-hmm. uh, may happen on someone untrained. But as soon as you start reaching obstacles, you have to find different branches off of this tree and different limbs in order to get to the same outcome, right? Ah. So it's it's like yeah, it's infinite and fractal in that sense. Right, because um, you don't know all the time what your opponent's going to throw up, throw up to defend you, but you get good at predicting what they're going to do based on, mm-hmm. well, in training with us, based on your relationship to each other, right? Like, so 
I've rolled with Z enough times that I know what he's going to do to me in certain positions, and so I can uh, counteract that before I know that he starts his sequence, right? So then there's timing and there's sequencing and things like that and mm -hmm. disrupting his sequence. So there's this concept, I don't know if you've heard of, called the OODA loop. Have you oh. heard of that? So it was developed by this, uh, I think he was a World War II fighter pilot, and he developed uh, this mental strategy to disrupt uh, the strategies of the people he was dogfighting against. Oh, really? So the OODA loop, uh, and I'll Google it real quick, but it, it stands for something. It's O-O-D-A, um, and um, let me see this real quick. So the OODA loop, um, so the cycle is observe, orient, decide, and act. So first you're observing what your opponent is doing, and this can be in jiu-jitsu terms. This can be visually, uh, or when you get up to a higher rank and you're, and you're starting, you know, you can roll with your eyes closed and and use more somatic um, senses, then that can be counted as observation too, right? So you're observing and then you orient yourself based on what you're observing. So now I see what you're doing, so now I'm gonna orient myself to either best defend or best attack based on what you're doing. Um, then I'm gonna decide what is the best course of action from that new orientation or the new perspective, mm -hmm. and then I'm going to act, right? So the point is to try and orient um, simultaneously as you observe so that you're already acting on your opponent before they can reorient, right? So you're, oh, okay. So you're trying to disrupt their OODA loop. So the OODA loop is like this natural process of like oh, how, I we, see what you're saying. how yeah, we yeah. orient and reorient and attack and defend and, and you're trying to disrupt their loop system, their cycle by orienting yourself as you're observing their orientation. Oh, that's really cool. So it's more of like a timing thing, but yeah, it was developed by this uh, dogfighting Air Force pilot. It's pretty cool. So you just like observe your opponent's like cycle, and then you try to interrupt it using your cycle, basically, is kind of thing. Um, yeah. So you observe their cycle, and all you need to do is disrupt the cycle. Okay. Disrupt what they are planning to do, and as soon as you disrupt what they're doing, now they're automatically on the defensive. I see. And before they can reset back into a new cycle of attack, you have already disrupted theirs, and you you're on the attack, right? So you're kind of, uh, you know, it's like if so someone it's like how to achieve the initiative in these situations, mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. So if someone like winds up to take a punch at you, right, and they're mm -hmm. winding up real big, and you're observing that this is what they're doing, and they're setting up, but you observe, or but you. Um, you disrupt my attack before it happens. So if you observe me winding up and then right away you throw a straight punch to my nose, mm -hmm. well, that just disrupted the entire attack that I was doing. And now I have to reorient to form my next attack, right? I see. Whereas when you, when you disrupted it, that's your chance to initiate your OODA loop. And now you orient to my disorientation and you can attack before I can reorient to attack. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's uh it's almost a strategy. Um, yeah, it's a strategical thing. Pretty cool. Um, yeah, really interesting. So yeah, it's it's interesting how we apply a lot of these higher order concepts that we that we think about and that we talk about in our everyday. You know, you and I talk about in our everyday life, um, quantum physics, things like that, and how we start to apply it. You know, I think that's the most interesting piece. It's one thing to have the knowledge up here in your brain and to just think about these topics, and it's really interesting to do that. You know, mm -hmm. but it's a whole other ball game to start to self-experiment with them and be like, "Huh, how can I 
take this idea that I just learned from this book and apply it to my perception of this activity that I love to do or this relationship that I'm in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so when I first learned learned about quantum entanglement, I, I looked into human human interaction between twins, right? And it's interesting how twins can sense each other over long distances simultaneously when one thing's happening to one, uh, you know, halfway across the uh, the world, the other one will feel it. Or really? Something. Yeah. Or like connections between uh, mothers and their kids, right? If something ha- bad happens to their kid, the parent can sense it before they ever get a call from the, you know, the coroner or the police or whoever saying so- something happened to your kid. Um, so it's interesting how we can take these theoretical concepts um, that have also been somewhat proven and start applying them to things that happen in everyday life. I think, it, again, it brings more understanding of what's going on, but it also mm-hmm. brings more questions. Yes. Yeah. But I think that's the interesting thing is that it brings more questions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, yeah, applying the knowledge you have to your everyday life. Mm-hmm. So if you, you know, and we're, we're running a little short on time, but if you could, from all your experiences and all your, you know, your psychedelic insights and your insights from education and reading and researching on your own from self-experience and martial arts and what you've learned from from there because i know you've learned a lot more than just physical uh, abilities but mm-hmm. um out of all that stuff if you could impart some patrick wisdom on the people out there listening you know what would that be i think that we all have some valuable information to share with everyone else um Again, we're all fractalized components of this one larger organism, but we seem so disconnected from each other. It's almost like the organism is starting to split apart, and I'm trying to bring us back together um, by sharing more with each other. So what do I have that would that yeah. helps me that might help other people? Yeah. Something? Yeah. One of the things that I, I always fall back on for... Uh, helping with self-improvement and, you know, being able to get through, like, tough times, like, you know, like, open bat, being under Jake, you know, (laughs) or, like, you know, trying to really wrap my head around, like, that concept of different types of infinites, you know, I had to watch, I watched the video tons and tons of times, and, you know, at a certain point, you're like, I just don't understand this, I can't understand this, Mm. right, but uh, one of the things that helps me get through all those kind of barriers is, I think it's called like you know mantra they talk about like just a thing you repeat to yourself mm-hmm. to help you get through that i've kind of uh i have different ask you know this like saying i give to myself that like you know to recenter i think mm-hmm. you can say um part of it was actually kind of like a gift from my family in a way uh so i have a coat of arms gorman's and mm-hmm. it has words that go along with it uh, the Latin for it is primi et ultimi in bello, hmm. which is first and last in battle. So, um, Where's your heritage from? Ireland. Ireland, okay. Mm-hmm. I'm half Irish, too. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Lamaster is Irish. Oh, really? I didn't mm-hmm. know that. Yeah, me neither. I thought it was French my whole life until like two uh, years ago. That would have been my guess, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have those words, and it basically means to me, never give up. Mm. You know, and uh, I take that as like, you know, th- that's what they thought was important, and that's what's should be shared and that's that's the goal to achieve is to be the first and last in battle you know uh that makes a lot of sense why you're one of the last people to leave the mat on open mat day yeah 
mm-hmm. and try to hold to that. And uh, there's another part of it is uh, sometimes when you, like I always try to remember that losing is the, you learn more from losing than you do from winning. Mm-hmm. So um, I try to think I, I will succeed or I will learn and always seek improvement. That's kind of like my algorithm for like getting better and learning always mm-hmm. is that either I succeed and I solve the problem or I learn how to solve the problem, I don't lose. Because when you start thinking you're, lo- you know, I lose all the time, I'm a loser, you know, like that that stuff, it's like a negative feedback loop. It starts feeding into itself because you stop improving and then you just feel like you suck, you know? So it's like, because I suck at this, then I can't, I suck at everything and I can't understand anything. Mm-hmm. And so like my way to get like out of that negative feedback loop that like seems to stick people is to stick to my algorithm, which is either succeed or learn and always seek improvement. So like they'll always seek improvement part is, uh, you know, so I never get comfortable with something that just works. Mm. You know, I want to try to make it better always, Mm. you know, so like you don't, you know, so you can find a better way to do things. So the full thing is, uh, I will succeed or I will learn and always seek improvement. Premi et ultimi in Bello. Mm -hmm. So if I ever like reach like a, uh, like an obstacle and I feel like I can't overcome it I just like back away like stop thinking about it and then like I use that to get my like courage back up basically nice. so nice. you know like those words work for me it has particular power I'd have to say because it comes from my family mm-hmm. you know and I feel like it's almost those past generations giving me their strength mm-hmm. um, so you know I and I think this concept of the mantra is in Buddhism too, and like you know, having words of encouragement to like repeat to yourself. Absolutely. So yeah, mantras are, um, you know, Buddhists use them for different reasons. Um, in sports psychology, we would call these trigger words or trigger phrases that have deep meaning to yourself and are short, usually very mm-hmm. brief. So yours was less than a paragraph, right? Mm-hmm. But it has so much meaning, so much emotional content behind it that it motivates you it drives you it gets you going again it initiates action Uh, so a trigger word or trigger phrase could be anything that that people resonate with mine is personally uh, stepping onto the mat in competition I say calm cool and collected and each one of those words has like pages and pages of meaning for them for me um but they're all performance based right so that's a performance based mantra mm-hmm. and then i have other mantras for other things too but i like that a lot um i think the listeners are going to take that and probably start asking themselves you know what is something short that i can tell myself to get me back on track yeah but i want to thank you for coming on the show today patrick well thanks for having me yeah it was awesome and i uh, hope to have you on again soon i think we can go into uh, a lot of these topics in much greater depth and we didn't even hardly scratch the surface of martial arts and uh, I know we could talk for hours on that too so yeah I hope to have you back soon definitely all right for all you listeners out there this has been uh, conversations with the mind with Patrick Gorman and Shane LeMaster Um, until next time stay true to yourselves stay good and uh, keep on exploring explore that inner verse peace Holy moly, that was an amazing episode. Uh, I had no idea that Patrick and I were going to get as deep as we did, Um, but I'm always pleasantly surprised when we go deeper into these topics than I expect us to. So 
What a great podcast. What a great guy. I hope you guys all enjoyed the conversation. I hope to have Patrick on many, many more times on the podcast. And uh, we didn't even touch on the subject of martial arts. So next time we have him on, we'll definitely get into uh, judo and jiu-jitsu and philosophies, uh, how they differ and how they're similar between the two. So keep listening to the podcast, guys. That's the best way you can support. Um, We'll keep winning awards with our award-winning episodes. And uh, you keep listening. Also keep liking and sharing all of our stuff. Uh, Subscribe to our MindOps YouTube page and go there for additional resources and additional content. We have all sorts of videos and we have created tons and tons of playlists uh, on all these topics, all these interesting topics that we should all be looking into. So until next time, thank you for listening and uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. Be good to each other. Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored by MindOps.com. You can find us at www.mind-ops.com. We're an eclectic counseling company providing mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, military, through face-to-face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties, sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We are available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. And now to the good news story.